Random House Audio presents A Game of Thrones Book One of A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin Read for you by Roy Detrice Prologue We should start back, Garrett urged as the woods began to grow dark around them. The wildlings are dead. Uh, do the dead frighten you? Sir Waymar Royce asked with just the hint of a smile. Garrett did not rise to the bait. He was an old man, past fifty, and he had seen the lordlings come and go. Dead is dead, he said. We have no business with the dead. Are they dead? Royce asked softly. What proof have we? Will saw them, Garrett said. And if he says they're dead, that's proof enough for me. Will had known they would drag him into the quarrel sooner or later. He wished it had been later rather than sooner. My mother told me that dead men sing no songs, he put in. My wet nurse said the same thing, Will, Royce replied. Never believe anything you hear at a woman's tit. There are things to be learned even from the dead. His voice echoed too loud in the twilight forest. We have a long ride before us, Garrett pointed out. Eight days, maybe nine, and night is falling. Sir Waymar Royce glanced at the sky with disinterest. It does that every day about this time. Are you unmanned by the dark, Garrett? Will could see the tightness around Garrett's mouth, the barely suppressed anger in his eyes under the thick black hood of his cloak. Garrett had spent forty years in the night's watch, man and boy, and he was not accustomed to being made light of. Yet it was more than that. Under the wounded pride, Will could sense something else in the older man. You could taste it, a nervous tension that came perilous close to fear. Will shared his unease. He'd been four years on the wall. The first time he had been sent beyond, all the old stories had come rushing back, and his bowels had turned to water. He had laughed about it afterwards. He was a veteran of a hundred rangings by now, and the endless dark wilderness that the Southerns called the Haunted Forest had no more terrors for him. Until tonight. Something was different tonight. There was an edge to this darkness that made his hackles rise. Nine days they had been riding, north and northwest, and then north again, farther and farther from the wall, hard on the track of a band of wildling raiders. Each day had been worse than the day that had come before. Today was the worst of all. A cold wind was blowing out of the north, and it made the trees rustle like living things. All day Will had felt as though something was watching him, something cold and implacable that loved him not. Garrett had felt it too. Will wanted nothing so much as to ride hell-bent for the safety of the wall, but that was not a feeling to share with your commander, especially not a commander like this one. Sir Waymar Royce was the youngest son of an ancient house with too many heirs. He was a handsome youth of eighteen, grey-eyed and graceful and slender as a knife. Mounted on his huge black destrier, the knight towered above Will and Garrett on their smaller garrons. He wore black leather boots, black woolen pants, black moleskin gloves, and a fine supple coat of gleaming black ringmail over layers of black wool and boiled leather. Sir Waymar had been a sworn brother of the Night's Watch for less than half a year, but no one could say he was not prepared for his vacation, at least in so far as his wardrobe was concerned. His cloak was his crowning glory, sable, thick, and black 
and soft as sin. Bet he killed them all himself, he did. Garrett told the barracks over wine. Twisted their little heads off, our mighty warrior. They had all shared a laugh. It is hard to take orders from a man you laughed at in your cups. Will reflected as he sat shivering atop his garron. Garrett must have felt the same. Mormont said, we shall track them, and we did, Garrett said. They're dead. They shan't trouble us no more. There's hard riding before us. I don't like this weather. If it snows, we could be a fortnight getting back, and snow's the best we can hope for. Ever seen an ice storm, my lord? The lordlings seemed not to hear him. He started the deepening twilight in that half-bored, half-distracted way he had. Will had ridden with the knight long enough to understand that it was best not to interrupt him when he looked like that. Uh, tell me again what you saw, Will. All the details. Leave nothing out. Will had been a hunter before he joined the Night's Watch. Well, a poacher, in truth. Malister Freeriders had caught him red-handed in the Malister's own wood, skinning one of the Malister's own bucks, and it had been a choice of putting on the black or losing a hand. No one could move through the woods as silent as Will, and it had not taken the Black Brothers long to discover his talent. The camp is two miles further on, over that ridge, hard beside a stream, Will said. I got close as I dared. There's eight of them, men and women both, no children I could see. They put up a lean-to against the rock. The snow has pretty well covered it now, but I could still make it out. No fire burning, but the fire pit was still plain as day. No one moving. I watched a long time. No living man ever lay so still. Uh, did you see any blood? Well, no, Will admitted. Did you see any weapons? Some swords, a few bows. One man had an axe. Heavy-looking, double-bladed, a cruel piece of iron. It was on the ground beside him, right by his hand. Did you make note of the position of the bodies? Will shrugged. A couple are sitting up against the rock, most of them on the ground. Fallen-like. Or sleeping, Royce suggested. Fallen, Will insisted. There's one woman up an ironwood, half hid in the branches. A far eyes. He smiled thinly. I took care she never saw me. When I got closer, I saw that she wasn't moving neither. Despite himself, he shivered. You have a chill? Royce asked. Some, Will muttered. The wind, my lord. The young knight turned back to his grizzled man of arms. Frost-fallen leaves whispered past them, and Royce's destrier moved restlessly. "'What do you think might have killed these men, Garrett?' Sir Waymar asked casually. He adjusted the drape of his long sable cloak. "'It was a cold,' Garrett said, with iron certainty. "'I saw men freeze last winter, and the one before, when I was half a boy.' Everyone talks about snows forty feet deep and how the ice wind comes howling out of the north. But the real enemy is the cold. It steals up on you quieter than will. And at first you shiver and your teeth chatter and you stamp your feet and dream of mulled wine and nice hot fires. It burns, it does. Nothing burns like the cold, but only for a while. Then it gets inside you and starts to fill you up. And after a while, you don't have the strength to fight it. It's easier just to sit down or go to sleep. They say you don't feel any pain toward the end. First you go weak and drowsy and everything starts to fade. And then it's like sinking into a sea of warm milk, peaceful like. 
Oh, such elegance, Garrett, Sir Waymar observed. I never suspected you had it in you. I've had the cold in me too, Lordling. Garrett pulled back his hood, giving Sir Waymar a good long look at the stumps where his ears had been. Two ears, three toes, and the little finger of me left hand. I got off light. We found my brother frozen at his watch, with a smile on his face. Sir Waymar shrugged. You ought to dress more warmly, Garrett. Garrett glared at the lordling. The scars around his ear holes flushed red with anger, where Maester Eamon had cut the ears away. We'll see how warm you can dress when the winter comes. He pulled up his hood and hunched over his garron, silent and sullen. If Garrett said it was the cold, Will began. Have you drawn any watches this past week, Will? Yes, my lord. There never was a week when he did not draw a dozen bloody watches. What was the man driving at? And how did you find the wall? Weeping, Will said, frowning. He saw it clear enough, now that the lordling had pointed it out. They couldn't have frozen. Not if the wall was weeping. It wasn't cold enough. Royce nodded. Bright lad. We've had a few light frosts this past week, and a quick flurry of snow now and then, but surely no cold fierce enough to kill eight grown men. Men clad in fur and leather, let me remind you, with shelter near at hand and the means of making fire. The knight's smile was cocksure. Will lead us there. I would see these dead men for myself. And then there was nothing to be done for it. The order had been given, and honour bound them to obey. Will went in front, his shaggy little garron peeking the way carefully through the undergrowth. A light snow had fallen the night before, and there were stones and roots and hidden sinks lying just under its crust, waiting for the careless and the unwary. Sir Waymar Royce came next, his great black destrier snorting impatiently. The war horse was the wrong mount for ranging, but try and tell that to the lordling. Garrett brought up the rear. The old man-at-arms muttered to himself as he rode. Twilight deepened. The cloudless sky turned a deep purple, the colour of an old bruise, then faded to black. The stars began to come out. A half-moon rose. Will was grateful for the light. We can make a better pace than this, surely, Royce said, when the moon was full risen. Not with this horse, Will said. Fear had made him insolent. Perhaps my lord would care to take the lead. So Waymar Royce did not deign to reply. Somewhere off in the wood, a wolf howled. Will pulled his garron over beside an ancient gnarled ironwood and dismounted. Why are you stopping? Sir Waymar asked. Best to go the rest of the way on foot, my lord. It's just over that ridge. Royce paused a moment, staring off into the distance, his face reflective. A cold wind whispered through the trees. His great sable cloak stirred behind him like something half alive. There's something wrong here, Garrod muttered. The young knight gave him a disdainful smile. Is there? Oh, can't you feel it? Garrod asked. Listen to the darkness. Will could feel it. Four years in the night watch, and he had never been so afraid. What was it? Wind. Trees rustling. A wolf. Which sound is it that unmanned you so, Garrod? When Garrod did not answer, Royce slid gracefully from his saddle. He tied the destrier securely to a low-hanging limb, well away from the other horses, and drew his longsword from its sheath. Jewels glittered in its hilt. 
and the moonlight ran down the shining steel. It was a splendid weapon, castle-forged and new-made from the look of it. Will doubted it had ever been swung in anger. The trees press close here, Will warned. That sword will tangle you up, my lord. Better a knife. If I need instruction, I will ask for it, the young lord said. Garrett, stay here. Guard the horses. Garrett dismounted. We need a fire. I'll see to it. How big a fool are you, old man, if there are enemies in this wood, and far is the last thing we want? There's some enemies a fire will keep away, Garrett said. Bears and direwolves and, uh, and, and other things. Sir Weymouth's mouth became a hard line. No fire. Garrett's hood shadowed his face, but Will could see the hard glitter in his eyes as he stared at the night. For a moment he was afraid the older man would go for his sword. It was a short, ugly thing, its grip discoloured by sweat, its edge nicked from hard use. But Will would not give an iron bob for the lordling's life if Garrett had pulled it from its scabbard. Finally, Garrett looked down. No fire, he muttered, low under his breath. Royce took it for acquiescence and turned away. Lead on, he said to Will. Will threaded their way through a thicket, then started up the slope to the low ridge where he had found his vantage point under a sentinel tree. Under the thin crust of snow, the ground was damp and muddy, slick footing, with rocks and hidden roots to trip you up. Will made no sound as he climbed. Behind him he heard the soft metallic slither of the lordling's ringmail, the rustle of leaves and muttered curses as reaching branches grabbed at his longsword and tugged at his splendid sable cloak. The great sentinel was right there at the top of the ridge where Will had known it would be its lowest branches a bare foot off the ground. Will slid in underneath, flat on his belly in the snow and the mud, and looked down on the empty clearing below. His heart stopped in his chest. For a moment he dared not breathe. Moonlight shone down on the clearing, the ashes of the fire pit, the snow-covered lean-to, the great rock, the little half-frozen stream. Everything was just as it had been a few hours ago. They were gone. All the bodies were gone. Gods, he heard behind him. A sword slashed at a branch as Sir Waymar Royce gained the ridge. He stood there beside the sentinel, longsword in hand, his cloak billowing behind him as the wind came up, outlined nobly against the stars for all to see. Get down, Will whispered urgently. Something's wrong. Royce did not move. He looked down at the empty clearing and laughed. Your dead men seem to have moved camp, Will. Will's voice abandoned him. He groped for words that did not come. It was not possible. His eyes swept back and forth over the abandoned campsite, stopped on the axe, a huge double-bladed battle axe still lying where he had seen it last, untouched, a valuable weapon. On your feet, Will, Sir Waymar commanded. There's no one here. I won't have you hiding under a bush. Reluctantly, Will obeyed. Sir Waymar looked him over with open disapproval. I'm not going back to Castle Black of failure on my first ranging. We will find these men. He glanced around. Up the tree. Be quick about it. Look for a fire. Will turned away wordless. There was no use to argue. The wind was moving. It cut right through him. 
He went to the tree, a vaulting grey-green sentinel, and began to climb. Soon his hands were sticky with sap, and he was lost among the needles. Fear filled his gut like a meal he could not digest. He whispered a prayer to the nameless gods of the woods and slipped his dirk free of its sheath. He put it between his teeth to keep both hands free for climbing. The taste of cold iron in his mouth gave him comfort. Down below, the lordling called out suddenly, Who goes there? Will heard uncertainty in the challenge. He stopped climbing. He listened. He watched. The woods gave answer. The rustle of leaves, the icy rush of the stream, a distant hoot of a snow owl. The others made no sound. Will saw movement from the corner of his eye. Pale shapes gliding through the wood. He turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness, then it was gone. Branches stirred gently in the wind, scratching at one another with wooden fingers. Will opened his mouth to call down a warning, and the words seemed to freeze in his throat. Perhaps he was wrong. Perhaps it had only been a bird, a reflection on the snow, some trick of the moonlight. What had he seen, after all? Will! Where are you? Sir Waymark called up. Can you see anything? He was turning in a slow circle, suddenly weary, his sword in hand. He must have felt them, as Will felt them. There was nothing to see. Answer me! Why is it so cold? It was cold. Shivering, Will clung more tightly to his perch, his face pressed hard against the trunk of the sentinel. He could feel the sweet, sticky sap on his cheek. A shadow emerged from the dark of the woods. It stood in front of Royce. Tall it was, and gaunt, and hard as old bones, with flesh pale as milk. Its armour seemed to change colour as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow, there black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the deep grey-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. Will heard the breath go out of Sir Waymar Royce in a long hiss. "'Come no further!' the lordling warned. His voice cracked like a boy's. He threw the long sable cloak back over his shoulders to free his arms for battle and took his sword in both hands. The wind had stopped. It was very cold. The other slid forward on silent feet. In its hand was a long sword like none that Will had ever seen. No human metal had gone into the forging of that blade. It was alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed almost to vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor. Sir Waymar met him bravely. Dance with me, then. He lifted his sword high above his head, defiant. His hands trembled from the weight of it, or perhaps from the cold. Yet in that moment, Will thought, he was a boy no longer, but a man of the night's watch. The other halted. Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. They fixed on the longsword, trembling on high, watched the moonlight running cold along the metal. For a heartbeat he dared to hope. They emerged silently from the shadows, twins to the first, three of them, four, five. Sir Waymar may have felt that cold that came with them, 
but he never saw them, never heard them. Will had to call out. It was his duty, and his death if he did. He shivered and hugged the tree and kept the silence. The pale sword came shivering through the air. Sir Waymar met it with steel. When the blades met, there was no ring of metal on metal, only a high, thin sound at the edge of hearing, like an animal screaming in pain. Royce checked a second blow and a third, then fell back a step. Another flurry of blows, and he fell back again. Behind him, to right, to left, all around him, the watcher stood patient, faceless, silent, the shifting patterns of their delicate armour making them all but invisible in the wood. Yet they made no move to interfere. Again and again the swords met, until Will wanted to cover his ears against the strange, anguished keening of their clash. Sir Waymar was panting from the effort now, his breath steaming in the moonlight. His blade was white with frost. The others danced with pale blue light. Then Royce's parry came a beat too late. The pale sword bit through the ringmail beneath his arm. The young lord cried out in pain. Blood welled between the rings. It steamed in the cold, and the droplets seemed red as fire where they touched the snow. Sir Waymar's fingers brushed his side. His moleskin glove came away, soaked with red. The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake, and the words were mocking. Sir Waymar Royce found his fury. For Robert, he shouted, and he came up snarling, lifting the frost-covered longsword with both hands and swinging it around in a flat sidearm slash with all his weight behind it. The other's parry was almost lazy. When the blades touched, the steel shattered. A scream echoed through the forest night, and the longsword shivered into a hundred brittle pieces, the shards scattering like a rain of needles. Royce went to his knees, shrieking, and covered his eyes. Blood welled between his fingers. The watchers moved forward together, as if some signal had been given. The swords rose and fell, all in deathly silence. It was cold butchery. The pale blades sliced through ring mail as if it were silk. Will closed his eyes. Far beneath him, he heard their voices and laughter, sharp as icicles. When he found the courage to look again, a long time had passed, and the ridge below was empty. He stayed in the tree, scarce daring to breathe, while the moon crept slowly across the black sky. Finally, his muscles cramping and his fingers numb with cold, he climbed down. Royce's body lay face down in the snow, one arm outflung. The thick sable cloak had been slashed in a dozen places. Lying dead like that, you saw how young he was. A boy. He found what was left of the sword a few feet away. The end splintered and twisted like a tree struck by lightning. Will knelt, looked around wearily, and snatched it up. The broken sword would be his proof. Garrett would know what to make of it, and if not him, then surely that old bear Mormont or Maester Amon. Would Garrett still be waiting with the horses? He had to hurry. Will rose. Sir Waymar Royce stood over him. His fine clothes were a tatter, his face a ruin. A shard from his sword 
transfixed the blind white pupil of his left eye. The right eye was open. The pupil burned blue. It saw. The broken sword fell from nerveless fingers. Will closed his eyes to pray. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek, then tightened around his throat. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood. Yet the touch was icy cold. Bran The morning had dawned clear and cold with a crispness that hinted at the end of summer. They set forth at daybreak to see a man beheaded, twenty in all, and Bran rode among them, nervous with excitement. This was the first time he had been deemed old enough to go with his lord father and his brothers to see the king's justice done. It was the ninth year of summer and the seventh of Bran's life. The man had been taken outside a small holdfast in the hills. Rob thought he was a wildling, his sword sworn to Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall. It made Bran's skin prickle to think of it. He remembered the hearth tales old Nan told them. The wildlings were cruel men, she said, slavers and slayers and thieves. They consorted with giants and ghouls. "'stole girl-children in the dead of night "'and drank blood from polished horns, "'and their women lay with the others "'in the long night to sar terrible, half-human children. "'But the man they found bound hand and foot "'to the whole fast wall, awaiting the king's justice, "'was old and scrawny, not much taller than Rob. "'He had lost both ears and a finger to frostbite, "'and he dressed all in black.' the same as the brother of the Night's Watch, except that his furs were ragged and greasy. The breath of man and horse mingled, steaming in the cold morning air, as his lord father had the man cut down from the wall and dragged before them. Rob and John sat tall and still on their horses, with Bran between them on his pony, trying to seem older than seven, trying to pretend that he'd seen all this before. A faint wind blew through the Holfast Gate. Over their heads flapped the banner of the Starks of Winterfell, a grey direwolf racing across an ice-white field. Bran's father sat solemnly on his horse, long brown hair stirring in the wind. His closely trimmed beard was shot with white, making him look older than his thirty-five years. He had a grim cast to his grey eyes this day and he seemed not at all the man who would sit before the fire in the evening and talk softly of the age of heroes and the children of the forest. He had taken off father's face, Bran thought, and donned the face of Lord Stark of Winterfell. There were questions asked and answers given there in the chill of morning, but afterwards Bran could not recall much of what had been said. Finally, his lord father gave a command and two of his guardsmen dragged the ragged man to the ironwood stump in the centre of the square. They forced his head down onto the hard black wood. Lord Eddard Stark dismounted, and his ward, Theon Greyjoy, brought forth the sword. Ice, that sword was called. It was as wide as a man's hand, and taller even than rub. The blade was Valyrian steel, spell-forged and dark as smoke. Nothing held an edge like Valyrian steel. 
His father peeled off his gloves and handed them to Jory Cassell, the captain of the household guard. He took hold of ice with both hands and said, In the name of Robert, of the house Baratheon, the first of the name, king of the Andals, and the Rhinar, and the first men, lord of the seven kingdoms and protector of the realm, by the word of Eddard of the house Stark, lord of Winterfell, and warden of the north, I do sentence you to die. He lifted the great sword high above his head. Bran's bastard brother, Jon Snow, moved closer. Keep the pony well in hand, he whispered, and don't look away. Father will know if you do. Bran kept his pony well in hand and did not look away. His father took off the man's head with a single sure stroke. Blood sprayed out across the snow as red as summer wine. One of the horses reared and had to be restrained to keep from bolting. Bran could not take his eyes off the blood. The snows around the stump drank it eagerly, reddening as he watched. The head bounced off a thick root and rolled. It came up near Greyjoy's feet. Theon was a lean, dark youth of nineteen who found everything amusing. He laughed, put his boot on the head and kicked it away. Ass, John muttered, low enough so Greyjoy could not hear. He put a hand on Bran's shoulder, and Bran looked over at his bastard brother. "'You did well,' John told him solemnly. John was fourteen, an old hand at justice. It seemed colder on the long ride back to Winterfell, though the wind had died by then, and the sun was higher in the sky. Bran rode with his brothers well ahead of the main party, his ponies struggling hard to keep up with their horses.' The deserter died bravely, Rob said. He was big and broad and growing every day with his mother's colouring, the fair skin, red-brown hair, and blue eyes of the Tullys of Riveron. He had courage, at the least. No, Jon Snow said quietly. It was not courage. This one was dead of fear. You could see it in his eyes, Stark. Jon's eyes were grey, so dark they seemed almost black, but there was little they did not see. He was of an age with Rob, but they did not look alike. John was slender, where Rob was muscular, dark where Rob was fair, graceful and quick, where his half-brother was strong and fast. Rob was not impressed. The others take his eyes, he swore. He died well. Race you to the bridge? Done, John said, kicking his horse forward. Rob cursed and followed, and they galloped off down the trail. Rob laughing and hooting, John silent and intent. The hoofs of their horses kicked up showers of snow as they went. Bran did not try to follow. His pony could not keep up. He had seen the ragged man's eyes, and he was thinking of them now. After a while, the sound of Rob's laughter receded, and the woods grew silent again. So deep in thought was he that he never heard the rest of the party until his father moved up to ride beside him. "'Are you well, Bran?' he asked, not unkindly. Yes, father, Bran told him. He looked up, wrapped in his furs and leathers, mounted on his great war-horse. The Lord Father loomed over him like a giant. Rob says the man died bravely, but John said he was afraid. And what do you think, his father asked. Bran thought about it. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. Do you understand why I did it? He was a wilding, Bran said. They carry off women, 
and sell them to the others. His Lord Father smiled. Old Nan has been telling you stories again. In truth, the man was an oath-breaker, a deserter from the Night's Watch. No man is more dangerous. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile. But you mistake me. The question was not why the man had to die, but why I must do it. Bran had no answer for that. King Robert has a headsman, he said uncertainly. He does, his father admitted, as did the Targaryen kings before him. Yet our way is the older way. The blood of the first men still flows in the veins of the Starks, and we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps a man does not deserve to die. One day, Bran, you will be Rob's bannerman, holding a keep of your own for your brother and your king, and justice will fall to you. When that day comes, you must take no pleasure in the task, but neither must you look away. A ruler who hides behind paid executioners soon forgets what death is. That was when John reappeared on the crest of the hill before him. He waved and shouted down at them, Father, Bran, come quickly. See what Rob has found. Then he was gone again. Jory rode up beside them. Trouble, my lord? Beyond a doubt, his lord father said. Come, let us see what mischief my sons have rooted out now. He sent his horse into a trot. Jory and Bran and the rest came after. They found Rob on the river bank north of the bridge, with John still mounted beside him. The late summer snows had been heavy this moon turn. Rob stood knee-deep in white, his hood pulled back so the sun shone in his hair. He was cradling something in his arm while the boys talked in hushed, excited voices. The riders picked their way carefully through the drifts, groping for solid footing on the hidden, uneven ground. Jory Cassell and Theon Greyjoy were the first to reach the boys. Greyjoy was laughing and joking as he rode. Bran heard the breath go out of him. Guards, he exclaimed, struggling to keep control of his horse as he reached for his sword. Jory's sword was already out. Rob, get away from it, he called his horse reared under him. Rob grinned and looked up from the bundle in his arms. She can't hurt you, he said. She's dead, Jory. Bran was afire with curiosity by then. He would have spurred the pony faster. But his father made them dismount beside the bridge and approach on foot. Bran jumped off and ran. By then, John, Jory, and Theon Greyjoy had all dismounted as well. What in the seven hells is it? Greyjoy was saying. A wolf, Rob told him. A freak, Greyjoy said. Look at the size of it. Bran's heart was thumping in his chest as he pushed through a waist-high drift to his brother's side. Half buried in the blood-stained snow, a huge dark shape slumped in death, Ice had formed in its shaggy grey fur, and the faint smell of corruption clung to it like a woman's perfume. Bran glimpsed blind eyes crawling with maggots, a wide mouthful of yellow teeth. But it was the size of it that made him gasp. It was bigger than his pony, twice the size of the largest hound in his father's kennel. "'It's no freak,' John said calmly. "'That's a dire wolf. They grow larger than the other kind.' Theon Greyjoy said, 
there's not been a direwolf sighted south of the wall in two hundred years. I see one now, John replied. Bran tore his eyes away from the monster. That was when he noticed the bundle in Rob's arms. He gave a cry of delight and moved closer. The pup was a tiny ball of grey-black fur, its eyes still closed. It nuzzled blindly against Rob's chest as he cradled it, searching for milk among his leathers, making a sad little whimpery sound. Bran reached out hesitantly. Go on, Rob told him. You can touch him. Bran gave the pup a quick nervous stroke, then turned as John said, Here you go. His half-brother put a second pup into his arms. There are five of them. Bran sat down in the snow and hugged the wolf pup to his face. Its fur was soft and warm against his cheek. Dire wolves loose in the realm after so many years, muttered Hullam, the master of horse. I like it not. It's a sign, Jory said. Father frowned. This is only a dead animal, Jory, he said. Yet he seemed troubled. Snow crunched under his boots as he moved around the body. Do we know what killed her? There's something in the throat, Rob told him, proud to have found the answer before his father even asked. There, just under the jaw. His father knelt and groped under the beast's head with his hand. He gave a yank and held it up for all to see. A foot of shattered antler, tine snapped off, all wet with blood. A sudden silence descended over the party. The men looked at the antler uneasily, and no one dared to speak. Even Bran could sense their fear, though he did not understand. His father tossed the antler to the side and cleansed his hands in the snow. I'm surprised she lived long enough even to whelp, he said. His voice broke the spell. Maybe she didn't, Jory said. I've heard tales. Maybe the bitch was already dead when the pups came. Born with the dead, another man put in. Worse luck. No matter, said Holland. They'll be dead soon enough, too. Bran gave a wordless cry of dismay. The sooner the better, Theon Greyjoy agreed. He drew his sword. Give the beast here, Bran. The little thing squirmed against him, as if it heard and understood. No, Bran cried out fiercely. It's mine. Put away your sword, Greyjoy, Rob said. For a moment he sounded as commanding as their father, like the lord he would someday be. We will keep these pups. You cannot do that, boy, said Harwin, who was Holland's son. It'll be a mercy to kill them, Holland said. Bran looked to his lord father for rescue, but got only a frown, a furrowed brow. Holland speaks truly, son. Better a swift death than a hard one from cold and starvation. No, he could feel tears welling in his eyes, and he looked away. He did not want to cry in front of his father. Rob resisted stubbornly. Sir Roderick's red bitch whelped again last week, he said. It was a small litter, only two live pups. She'll have milk enough. She'll rip them apart when they try to nurse. Lord Stark, John said. It was strange to hear him call father that, so formal. Bran looked at him with desperate hope. There are five pups, he told father. Three male, two female. What of it, John? You have five true-born children, John said. Three sons, two daughters. The dire wolf is a sigil of your house. Your children were meant to have these pups, my lord. Bran saw his father's face change, saw the other men exchange glances. He loved John with all his heart at that moment. 
Even at seven, Bran understood what his brother had done. The Count had come right only because John had omitted himself. He had included the girls, included even Rick on the baby, but not the bastard who bore the surname Snow, the name that custom decreed be given to all those in the North unlucky enough to be born with no name of their own. Their father understood as well. You want no pop for yourself, John? he asked softly. The direwolf graces the banner of House Stark, John pointed out. I am no Stark, father. Their lord father regarded John thoughtfully. Rob rushed into the silence he left. I will nurse him myself, father, he promised. I will soak a towel with warm milk and give him suck from that. Me too, Bran echoed. The lord weighed his sons long and carefully with his eyes. Easy to say, and harder to do. I will not have you wasting the servants' time with this. If you want these pups, you will feed them yourselves, is that understood? Bran nodded eagerly. The pup squirmed in his grasp, licked at his face with a warm tongue. You must train them as well, the father said. You must train them. The kennel master will have nothing to do with these monsters, I promise you that. And the gods help you if you neglect them or brutalize them or train them badly. These are not dogs to beg for treats and slink off at a kick. A dire wolf will rip a man's arm off his shoulder as easily as a dog will kill a rat. You sure you want this? Yes, father, Bran said. Yes, Rob agreed. The pups may die anyway, despite all you do. They won't die, Rob said. We won't let them die. Keep them, then. Jory, Desmond, gather up the other pups. It's time we were back to Winterfell. It was not until they were mounted and on their way that Bran allowed himself to taste the sweet air of victory. By then his pup was snuggling inside his leathers, warm against him, safe for the long ride home. Bran was wondering what to name him. Halfway across the bridge, John pulled up suddenly. What is it, John? the Lord Father asked. Can't you hear it? Bran could hear the wind in the trees, the clatter of their hooves on the ironwood planks, the whimpering of his hungry pup, but John was listening to something else. There, John said. He swung his horse around and galloped back across the bridge. They watched him dismount where the dire wolf lay dead in the snow, watched him kneel. A moment later he was riding back to them, smiling. He must have crawled away from the others, John said. All been driven away, the father said, looking at the sixth pup. His fur was white where the rest of the litter was grey. His eyes were red as the blood of the ragged man who had died that morning. Bran thought it curious that this pup alone would have opened his eyes while the others were still blind. An albino, Theo Greyjoy said with wry amusement. <laughs> this one will die even faster than the others. Jon Snow gave his father's ward a long, chilling look. I think not, Greyjoy, he said. This one belongs to me. Catelyn Catelyn had never liked this godswood. She had been born at Tully, at Riveron, far to the south, on the red fork of the Trident. The godswood there was a garden, bright and airy, where tall redwood spread dappled shadows across tinkling streams. Birds sang from hidden nests, and the air was spicy with the scent of flowers. The guards of Winterfell kept a different sort of wood, 
It was a dark, primal place. Three acres of old forest untouched for 10,000 years as the gloomy castle rose around it. It smelled of moist earth and decay. No redwoods grew here. This was a wood of stubborn sentinel trees armored in gray-green needles of mighty oaks of iron woods as old as the realm itself. Here, thick black trunks crowded close together, while twisted branches wove a dense canopy overhead and misshapen roots wrestled beneath the soil. This was a place of deep silence and brooding shadows, and the guards who lived here had no names. But she knew she would find her husband here tonight. Whenever he took a man's life, afterwards he would seek the quiet of the gods' wood. Catelyn had been anointed with the seven oils and named in the rainbow of light that filled the sept of River Run. She was of the faith, like her father and grandfather and his father before him. Her gods had names, and their faces were as familiar as the faces of her parents. Worship was a septon with a censer, the smell of incense, a seven-sided crystal alive with light, voices raised in song. The Tullys kept a godswood as all great houses did, but it was only a place to walk or read or lie in the sun. Worship was for the sept. For her sake, Ned had built a small sept where she might sing to the seven faces of God, but the blood of the first men still flowed in the veins of the Starks, and his own gods were the old ones, the nameless, faceless gods of the greenwood they shared with the vanished children of the forest. At the center of the grove, an ancient weirwood brooded over a small pool, where the waters were black and cold. The heart tree, Ned called it. The weirwood's bark was white as bone, its leaves dark red, like a thousand blood-stained hands. A face had been carved in the trunk of the great tree, its features long and melancholy, the deep-cut eyes red with dried sap and strangely watchful. They were old, those eyes, older than Winterfell itself. They had seen Brandon the Builder set the first stone, if the tales were true. They had watched the castle's granite walls rise around them. It was said that the children of the forest had carved the faces in the trees during the dawn centuries before the coming of the first men across the narrow sea. In the south, the last weirwoods had been cut down or burned out a thousand years ago, except on the Isle of Faces where the green men kept their silent watch. Up here, it was different. Here, every castle had its godswood, and every godswood had its heart tree and every heart tree its face. Catelyn found her husband beneath the weirwood, seated on a moss-covered stone. The great sword ice was across his lap, and he was cleaning the blade in those waters black as night. A thousand years of humus lay thick upon the godswood floor, swallowing the sound of her feet. But the red eyes of the weirwood seemed to follow her as she came. Ned, she called softly, he lifted his head to look at her. Catelyn, he said. His voice was distant and formal. Where are the children? He would always ask her that. In the kitchen, arguing about names for the wolf pups, she spread her cloak on the forest floor and sat beside the pool, her back to the weirwood. She could feel the eyes watching her, but she did her best to ignore them. Arya is already in love, 
and Sancha is charmed and gracious, but Rickon is not quite sure. Is he afraid, Ned Arth? Well, a little, she admitted. He's only three. Ned frowned. He must learn to face his fears. He will not be three forever, and winter is coming. Yes, Catelyn agreed. The words gave her a chill, as they always did, the stark words. Every noble house had its words. Family mottoes, touchstones, prayers of sorts. They boasted of honour and glory, promised loyalty and truth, swore faith and courage, all but the Starks. Winter is coming, said the Stark words. Not for the first time she reflected on what a strange people these northerners were. The old man died well, I'll give him that, Ned said. He had a swatch of oil leather in one hand. He ran it lightly up the great sword as he spoke, polishing the metal to a dark glow. I was glad for Bran's sake. You would have been proud of Bran. I'm always proud of Bran, Catelyn replied, watching the sword as he stroked it. She could see the rippling deep within the steel where the metal had been folded back on itself a hundred times in the forging. Catelyn had no love for swords, but she could not deny that ice had its own beauty. It had been forged in Valyria before the doom had come to the old freehold, when the ironsmiths had worked their metal with spells as well as hammers. Four hundred years old it was, and as sharp as the day it was forged. The name it bore was older still, a legacy from the age of heroes, when the Starks were kings in the north. He was the fourth this year, Ned said grimly. The poor man was half mad. Something had put a fear in him so deep that my words could not reach him. He sighed. Ben writes that the strength of the Night's Watch is down below a thousand. It's not only desertions. They're losing men on rangings as well. Is it the wildlings, she asked. Well, who else? Ned lifted ice, looked down the cool steel length of it. And it will only grow worse. The day may come when I will have no choice but to call the banners and ride north to deal with this king beyond the wall, for good and all. Beyond the wall? The thought made Catelyn shudder. Ned saw the dread on her face. Man's raider is nothing for us to fear. There are darker things beyond the wall. She glanced behind her at the heart tree, the pale bark and red eyes, watching, listening, thinking its long, slow thoughts. His smile was gentle. You listen to too many old Nan stories. The others are as dead as the children of the forest, gone eight thousand years. Maester Lewin will tell you they never lived at all. No living man has ever seen one. Until this morning, no living man had ever seen a direwolf either, Catelyn reminded him. I, I, I ought to know better than argue with a tully, he said with a rueful smile. He slid ice back into its sheath. You did not come here to tell me crib tales. I know how little you like this place. Now what is it, my lady? Catelyn took her husband's hand. There was grievous news today, my lord. I did not wish to trouble you until you had cleansed yourself. There was no way to soften the blows, so she told him straight. I'm so sorry, my love. John Aaron is dead. His eyes found hers, and she could see how hard it took him, as she had known it would. In his youth, Ned had fostered at the Eyrie, and the childless Lord Aaron 
had become a second father to him and his fellow ward, Robert Baratheon. When the Mad King Aerys II Targaryen had demanded their heads, the lord of the area had raised his moon and falcon banners in revolt, rather than give up those he had pledged to protect. And one day, fifteen years ago, this second father had become a brother as well, as he and Ned stood together in the sept at Riveron to wed two sisters, the daughters of Lord Hoster Tully. John, he said, is this news certain? It was the king's seal, and the letter is in Robert's own hand. I saved it for you. He said Lord Aaron was taken quickly. Even Meister Pycelle was helpless. But he brought the milk of the poppy, so John did not linger long in pain. That is some small mercy, I suppose, he said. She could see the grief on his face. But even then he thought first of her. Your sister, he said, and, and John's boy, what word of them? The message said only that they were well and had returned to the airy. Catelyn said, I wish they'd gone to River Run instead. The area's high and lonely, and it was ever her husband's place, not hers. Lord John's memory will haunt each stone. I know my sister. She needs the comfort of family and friends around her. Your uncle waits in the Vale, does he not? John named him Knight of the Gate, I heard. Catelyn nodded. Brynden will do what he can for her and for the boy. That is some comfort, but still... Go to her, Ned urged. Take the children. Fill her halls with noise and shouts and laughter. The boy of hers needs other children about him, and Lysa should not be alone in her grief. Would that I could, Catelyn said. The letter had other tidings. The king is riding to Winterfell to seek you out. It took Ned a moment to comprehend her words, but when the understanding came, the darkness left his eyes. Robert? is coming here? When she nodded, a smile broke across his face. Catelyn wished she could share his joy, but she had heard the talk in the yards, a dire wolf dead in the snow, a broken antler in its throat. Dread coiled within her like a snake, but she forced herself to smile at this man she loved, this man who put no faith in signs. I knew that would please you, she said. We shall send word to your brother on the wall. Yes, of course, he agreed. Ben will want to be here. I shall tell Maester Lewin to send his swiftest bird. Ned rose and pulled her to her feet. Damnation! How many years has it been? And he gives us no more notice than this? How many in his party, did the message say? I should think a hundred knights at the least, with all their retainers, and half again as many free riders. Cersei and the children travel with them. Robert will keep an easy pace for their sakes, he said. It's just as well. That will give us more time to prepare. The Queen's brothers are also in the party, she told him. Ned grimaced at that. There was small love between him and the Queen's family. Catelyn knew. The Lannisters of Castle Rock had come to Robert's cause when victory was all but certain, and he had never forgiven them. Well, if the price for Robert's company is an infestation of Lannisters, so be it. It sounds as though Robert is bringing half his court. Where the king goes, the realm follows, she said. It will be good to see the children. The youngest was still sucking at the Lannister woman's teat the last time I saw him. He must be, what, five by now? Prince Tommen is seven, she told him, the same age as Bran. Please, Ned, guard your tongue. The Lannister woman is our queen, 
and her pride is said to grow with every passing year. Ned squeezed her hand. There must be a feast, of course, with singers, and Robert will want to hunt. I shall send Jory south with an honour guard to meet them on the King's Road and escort them back. Gods, how are we going to feed them all? On his way already, you said? Damn the man! Damn his royal hide! Daenerys. Her brother held a gown up for her inspection. This is beauty. Touch it. Go on, caress the fabric. Danny touched it. The cloth was so smooth that it seemed to run through her fingers like water. She could not remember ever wearing anything so soft. It frightened her. She pulled her hand away. Is it really mine? A gift from the Magister Illyrio. Viserys said, smiling. Her brother was in a high mood tonight. The colour will bring out the violet in your eyes, and you shall have gold as well and jewels of all sorts. Illyrio has promised. Tonight you must look like a princess. A princess, Danny thought. She had forgotten what that was like. Perhaps she had never really known. Why does he give us so much, she asked. What does he want from us? For nigh on half a year they had lived in the Magister's house, eating his food, pampered by his servants. Danny was thirteen, old enough to know that such gifts seldom come without their price, here in the free city of Pentos. Illyria is no fool, Viserys said. He was a gaunt young man with nervous hands and a feverish look in his pale lilac eyes. The Magister knows that I will not forget my friends when I come into my throne. Danny said nothing. Magister Illyrio was a dealer in spices, gemstones, dragonbone, and other less savoury things. He had friends in all the nine free cities, it was said, and even beyond, in Vase Dothrak and the fabled lands beside the Jade Sea. It was also said that he had never had a friend he wouldn't cheerfully sell for the right price. Danny listened to the talk in the streets, and she heard these things. But she knew better than to question her brother when he wove his web of dreams. His anger was a terrible thing when roused. Viserys called it waking the dragon. Her brother hung the gown beside the door. Illyrio will send the slaves to bathe you. Be sure you wash off the stink of the stables. Carl Drogo has a thousand horses. Tonight he looks for a different sort of mount. He studied her critically. You still slouch. Straighten yourself. He pushed back her shoulders with his hands. Let them see that you have a woman's shape now. His fingers brushed lightly over her budding breasts and tightened on a nipple. You will not fail me tonight. If you do, it will go hard for you. You don't want to wake the dragon, do you? His fingers twisted her, the pinch cruelly hard through the rough fabric of her tunic. Do you? He repeated. No, said Danny meekly. Her brother smiled. Good. He touched her hair almost with affection. When they write the history of my reign, sweet sister, they will say that it began tonight. When he was gone, Danny went to her window and looked out wistfully on the waters of the bay. The square brick towers of Pentos were black silhouettes outlined against the setting sun. Danny could hear the singing of the red priests as they lit the night fires and the shouts of ragged children playing games beyond the walls of the estate. 
For a moment she wished she could be out there with them, barefoot and breathless and dressed in tatters, with no past, no future, and no feast to attend at Karl Drogu's manse. Somewhere beyond the sunset, across the narrow sea, lay a land of green hills and flowered plains and great rushing rivers, where towers of dark stone rose amidst magnificent blue-gray mountains, and armored knights rode to battle beneath the banners of their lords. The Dothraki call that land Reush and Dali, the land of the Andals. In the free cities they talked of Westeros and the Sunset Kingdoms. Her brother had a simpler name. Our land, he called it. The words were like a prayer with him. If he said them enough, the guards were sure to hear. Ours by blood right, taken from us by treachery, but ours still, ours forever. You do not steal from the dragon. Oh, no, the dragon remembers. And perhaps the dragon did remember, but Danny could not. She had never seen this land her brother said was theirs, this realm beyond the narrow sea. These places he talked of, Casterly Rock and the Eyrie, High Garden and the Vale of Erin, Dawn and the Isle of Faces. They were just words to her. Viserys had been a boy of eight when they fled the King's Landing to escape the advancing armies of the usurper, but Daenerys had been only a quickening in her mother's womb. Yet sometimes Danny would picture the way it had been. So often had her brother told her the stories. The midnight flight to Dragonstone, moonlight shimmering on the ship's black sails, her brother Rhaegar battling the usurper in the bloody waters of the Trident and dying for the woman he loved. The sack of King's Landing, by the ones Viserys called the usurper's dogs. The Lords Lannister and Stark, Princess Elia of Dawn, pleading for mercy as Rhaegar's heir was ripped from her breast and murdered before her eyes. The polished skulls of the last dragon staring down sightlessly from the walls of the throne room, while the King Slayer opened father's throat with a golden sword. She had been born on Dragonstone nine moons after their flight, while a raging summer storm threatened to rip the island fastness apart. They said that storm was terrible. The Targaryen fleet was smashed while it lay at anchor, and huge stone blocks were ripped from the parapets and sent hurtling into the wild waters of the narrow sea. Her mother had died birthing her, and for that her brother, Viserys, had never forgiven her. She did not remember Dragonstone either. They had run again, just before the usurper's brother set sail with his new-built fleet. By then, only Dragonstone itself, the ancient seat of their house, had remained of the seven kingdoms that had once been theirs. It would not remain for long. The garrison had been prepared to sell them to the usurper. But one night, Sir Willem Darry and four loyal men had broken into the nursery and stolen them both along with her wetness, and set sail under cover of darkness for the safety of the Bravosian coast. She remembered Sir Willem dimly, a great grey bear of a man, half-blind, roaring and bellowing orders from his sick bed. The servants had lived in terror of him, but he had always been kind to Danny. He called her Little Princess, and sometimes My Lady, and his hands were soft as old leather. He never left his bed, though, and the smell of sickness clung to him day and night, a hot, 
moist, sickly sweet odour. That was when they lived in Bravas, in the big house with the red door. Danny had her own room there with a lemon tree outside her window. After Sir Willem had died, the servants had stolen what little money they had left, and soon after they had been put out of the big house. Danny had cried when the red door closed behind them forever. They had wandered since then, from Bravas to Myrrh, from Myrrh to Tyrosh, and unto Cohor, and Volantis, and Lice, never staying long in any one place. Her brother would not allow it. The usurper's hard knives were close behind them, he insisted, though Danny had never seen one. At first the magisters and archons and merchant princes were pleased to welcome the last Targaryens to their homes and tables, but as the years passed and the usurper continued to sit upon the Iron Throne, doors closed and their lives grew meaner. Years passed, they had been forced to sell their last few treasures, and now even the coin they had gotten from Mother's Crown had gone. In the alleys and wine sinks of Pentos, they called her brother the Beggar King. Danny did not want to know what they called her. We will have it all back some day, sweet sister, he would promise her. Sometimes his hand shook when he talked about it. The jewels and the silks, Dragonstone and King's Landing, the Iron Throne and the Seven Kingdoms, all they have taken from us, we will have it back. Viserys lived for that day. All that Daenerys wanted back was the big house with the red door, the lemon tree outside her window, the childhood she had never known. There came a soft knock on her door. Come, Danny said, turning away from the window. Illyrio's servants entered, bowed, and set about their business. They were slaves, a gift from the Magister's many Dothraki friends. There was no slavery in the free city of Pentos. Nonetheless, they were slaves. The old woman, small and grey as a mouse, never said a word, but the girl made up for it. She was Illyrio's favourite, a fair-haired, blue-eyed wench of sixteen who chattered constantly as she worked. They filled her bath with hot water, brought up from the kitchen, and scented it with fragrant oils. The girl pulled the rough cotton tunic over Danny's head and helped her into the tub. The water was scalding hot, but Daenerys did not flinch or cry out. She liked the heat. It made her feel clean. Besides, her brother had often told her it was never too hot for a Targaryen. Ours is the house of the dragon, he would say. The fire is in our blood. The old woman washed her long, silver-pale hair and gently combed out the snags, all in silence. The girl scrubbed her back and her feet and told her how lucky she was. Drogo is so rich that even his slaves wear golden collars. A hundred thousand men ride in his calisar, and his palace in Vase Dothrak hath two hundred rooms and doors of solid silver. There was more like that, so much more. What a handsome man the Carl was, so tall and fierce, fearless in battle, the best rider ever to mount a horse, a demon archer. Daenerys said nothing. She had always assumed that she would wed Viserys when she came of age. For centuries the Targaryens had married brother to sister, since Aegon the Conqueror had taken his sisters to bride. The line must be kept pure, Viserys had told her a thousand times. Theirs was the king's blood, the golden blood of old Valyria, the blood of the dragon. Dragons did not mate with the beasts of the field, and Targaryens did not mingle their blood with that of lesser men. 
Yet now Viserys schemed to sell her to a stranger, a barbarian. When she was clean, the slaves helped her from the water and toweled her dry. The girl brushed her hair until it shone like molten silver, while the old woman anointed her with the spice-flower perfume of the Dothraki plains, a dab on each wrist, behind her ears, on the tip of her breasts, and one last one, cool on her lips, down there between her legs. They dressed her in the wisps that Magister Illyrio had sent up, and then the gown, a deep plum silk, to bring out the violet in her eyes. The girl slid the gilded sandals onto her feet, while the old woman fixed the tiara in her hair, and slid golden bracelets crusted with amethysts around her wrists. Last of all came the collar, a heavy gold torque emblazoned with ancient Valyrian glyphs. Now you look all a princess, the girl said breathlessly when they were done. Danny glanced at her image in the silvered looking glass that Illyrio had so thoughtfully provided. A princess, she thought. But she remembered what the girl had said. How Karl Drogo was so rich, even his slaves wore golden collars. She felt a sudden chill, and goose flesh pimpled her bare arms. Her brother was waiting in the cool of the entry hall, seated on the edge of the pool, his hand trailing in the water. He rose when she appeared and looked her over critically. Stand there, he told her. Turn around. Yes, good. You look... Regal, Master Illyrio said, stepping through an archway. He moved with surprising delicacy for such a massive man. Beneath loose garments of flame-coloured silk, rolls of fat jiggled as he walked. Gemstones glittered on every finger, and his man had oiled his forked yellow beard until it shone like real gold. May the Lord of Light shower you with blessings on this most fortunate day, Princess Daenerys, the Magister said as he took her hand. He bowed his head, showing a thin glimpse of crooked yellow teeth through the gold of his beard. She is a vision, Your Grace, a vision, he told her brother. Drogo will be enraptured. She's too skinny, Viserys said. His hair, the same silver blonde as hers, had been pulled back tightly behind his head and fastened with a dragon-bone brooch. It was a severe look that emphasized the hard, gaunt lines of his face. He rested his hand on the hilt of the sword that Illyrio had lent him and said, Are you sure that Karl Droger likes his women this young? She has had her blood. She is old enough for the Karl, Illyrio told him, not for the first time. Look at her, the silver-gold hair, those purple eyes. She is the blood of old Valyria, no doubt, no doubt. And high-born, daughter of the old king, sister to the new, she cannot fail to entrance our Drogo. When he released her hand, Daenerys found herself trembling. I suppose, her brother said doubtfully, the savages have queer tastes, hmm? Boys, horses, sheep... Best not suggest this to Carl Drogo, Illyria said. Anger flashed in her brother's lilac eyes. Do you take me for a fool? The magister bowed slightly. I take you for a king. Kings lack the caution of common men. My apologies if I have given offence. He turned away and clapped his hands for his bearers. 
the streets of Pentos were pitch dark when they set out in Illyrio's elaborately carved palanquin. Two servants went ahead to light their way, carrying ornate oil lanterns with panes of pale blue glass, while a dozen strong men hoisted the poles to their shoulders. It was warm and close inside behind the curtains. Danny could smell the stench of Illyrio's pallid flesh through his heavy perfumes. Her brother sprawled out on the pillows beside her, never noticed. His mind was away across the narrow sea. We won't need his whole calisar, Viserys said. His fingers toyed with the hilt of his burrowed blade, though Danny knew he had never used the sword in earnest. Ten thousand, that would be enough. I could sweep the seven kingdoms with ten thousand Dothraki screamers. The realm will rise for its rightful king. Tyrell, Redwyn, Darry, Greyjoy, they have no more love for the usurper than I do. The Dornish men burn to avenge Ilya and her children, and the small folk will be with us. They cry out for their king. He looked at Lirio anxiously. Well, they do, don't they? They are your people, and they love you well, Master Lirio said amiably. In whole farce across the realm, men lift secret toasts to your health, while women sow dragon banners and hide them against the day of your return from across the water. He gave a massive shrug. Or so my agents tell me. Danny had no agents, no way of knowing what anyone was doing or, or thinking across the narrow sea, but she mistrusted Illyrio's sweet words, as she mistrusted everything about Illyrio. Her brother was nodding eagerly, however. I shall kill the usurper myself, he promised, who had never killed anyone, as he killed my brother Rhaegar and Lannister too, the Kingslayer, for what he did to my father. That would be most fitting, Magister Illyrio said. Danny saw the smallest hint of a smile playing around his full lips, but her brother did not notice. Nodding, he pushed back a curtain and stared off into the night, and Danny knew he was fighting the Battle of the Trident once again. The nine tarred manse of Karl Drogo sat beside the waters of the bay, its high brick walls overgrown with pale ivy. It had been given to the Karl by the Magisters of Pentos, Illyrio told them. The free cities were always generous with the horse lords. It is not that we fear these barbarians, Illyrio would explain with a smile. The Lord of Light would hold our city walls against a million Dothraki, or so the Red Priest promise. Yet why take chances when their friendship comes so cheap? Their palanquin was stopped at the gate, the curtains pulled roughly back by one of the house guards. He had the copper skin and dark almond eyes of a Dothraki, but his face was hairless, and he wore the spiked bronze cap of the unsolid. He looked them over coldly, Magister Illyrio growled something to him in the rough Dothraki tongue. The guardsman replied in the same voice and waved them through the gates. Danny noticed that her brother's hand was clenched tightly around the hilt of his borrowed sword. He looked almost as frightened as she felt. Insolent eunuch, Viserys muttered as the palanquin lurched up toward the manse. Magister Illyrio's words were high. Many important men will be at the feast tonight. Such men have enemies. The Carl must protect his guests. 
yourself chief among them, Your Grace. No doubt the usurper would pay well for your head. Oh, yes, Viserys said darkly. He has tried Illyrio, I promise that. His hard knives follow us everywhere. I'm the last dragon, and he will not sleep easy while I live. The palanquin slowed and stopped. The curtains were thrown back, and a slave offered a hand to help Daenerys out. His colour, she noted, was ordinary bronze. Her brother followed, one hand still clenched hard around his sword hilt. It took two strong men to get Magister Illyrio back on his feet. Inside the manse, the air was heavy with the scent of spices, pinch fire and sweet lemon and cinnamon. They were escorted across the entry hall, where a mosaic of coloured glass depicted the doom of Valeria. Oil burned in black iron lanterns all along the walls. Beneath an arch of twining stone leaves, a eunuch sang their coming. Viserys of the house Targaryen, the third of his name, he called in a high, sweet voice. King of the Andals and the Ronar and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm, his sister Daenerys Stormborn, Princess of Dragonstone, his honourable host, Illyrio Mepatis, Magister of the Free City of Pentos. They stepped past the eunuch into a pillared courtyard overgrown in pale ivory. Moonlight painted the leaves in shades of bone and silver as the guests drifted among them. Many were Dothraki horse lords, big men with red bronze skin, their drooping mustachios bound in metal rings, their black hair oiled and braided and hung with bells. Yet among them moved bravos and sellswords from Pentus and Myrrh and Tyrosh. A red priest, even fatter than Illyrio, hairy man from the port of Ibn, and lords from the summer isles with skins as black as ebony. Daenerys looked at them all in wonder and realized with a sudden start of fear that she was the only woman there. Illyrio whispered to them, Those three are Drago's blood riders there, he said. By the pillars, Carl Murrow with his son Rogaro. The man with the green beard is brother to the Archon of Tyrosh, and the man behind him is Seer Jara Mormont. The last name caught Daenerys. A knight? No less, Illyrio smiled through his beard, anointed with the seven oils by the High Septon himself. What is he doing here, she blurted. The usurper wanted his head, Illyrio told them. Some trifling affront. He sold some poachers to a Tyroshi slaver instead of giving them to the night's watch. Absurd law. A man should be able to do as he likes with his own chattel. I shall wish to speak with Sir Jorah before the night is done, her brother said. Dani found herself looking at the night curiously. He was an older man, past forty and balding, but still strong and fit. Instead of silks and cottons, he wore wool and leather. His tunic was a dark green, embroidered with the likeness of a black bear standing on two legs. She was still looking at this strange man from the homeland she had never known, when Magister Illyrio placed a moist hand on her bare shoulder. Over there, sweet princess, he whispered. There is the Carl himself. Danny wanted to run and hide. But her brother was looking at her, and if she displeased him, she knew she would wake the dragon. 
Anxiously, she turned and looked at the man Viserys hoped would ask to wed her before the night was done. The slave girl had not been far wrong, she thought. Karl Droger was a head taller than the tallest man in the room, yet somehow light on his feet, as graceful as the panther in Illyrio's menagerie. He was younger than she'd thought, no more than thirty. His skin was the colour of polished copper, his thick moustachios bound with gold and bronze rings. I must go and make my submissions, Magister Illyrio said. Wait here. I shall bring him to you. Her brother took her by the arm as Illyrio waddled off to the cowl, his fingers squeezing so hard that they hurt. Do you see his braid, sweet sister? Drogo's braid was black as midnight and heavy with scented oil, hung with tiny bells that rang softly as he moved. It swung well past his belt, even below his buttocks, the end of it brushing against the back of his thighs. You see how long it is, Viserys said. When Dothraki are defeated in combat, they cut off their braids in disgrace, so the world will know their shame. Karl Drogo has never lost a fight. He is Aegon, the Dragon Lord, come again, and you will be his queen. Danny looked at Karl Drogo. His face was hard and cruel, his eyes as cold and dark as onyx. Her brother hurt her sometimes when she woke the dragon, but he did not frighten her the way this man frightened her. I don't want to be his queen, she heard herself say in a small, thin voice. Please, please, Viserys, I don't want to. I, I want to go home. Home? Kept his voice low, but she could hear the fury in his tone. How are we to go home, sweet sister? They took her home from us. He drew her into the shadows out of sight, his fingers digging into her skin. How are we to go home? He repeated, meaning King's Landing and Dragonstone and all the realm they had lost. Danny had only meant their rooms and Illyria's estate. No true home, surely, though all they had, but her brother did not want to hear that. There was no home there for him. Even the big house with the red door had not been home for him. His fingers dug hard into her arm, demanding an answer. I don't know, she said at last, her voice breaking, the tears welling in her eyes. I do, he said sharply. We go home with an army, sweet sister, with Carl Drago's army. That is how we go home. And if you must wed him and bet him for that, you will. He smiled at her. I'll let his whole Kalasar fuck you if need be, sweet sister, all 40,000 men and their horses too, if that was what it took to get my army. Be grateful is only Drogo. In time, you may even learn to like him. Now dry your eyes, Illyrio is bringing him over, and he will not see you crying. Danny turned, and so it was true. Master Illyrio, all smiles and bows, was escorting Carl Drogo over to where they stood. She brushed away unfallen tears with the back of her hand. Smile, Viserys whispered nervously, his hand falling to the hilt of his sword. And stand up straight. Let him say that you have breasts. Gods, no, you have little enough as it is. Daenerys smiled and stood up straight. Eddard. The visitors poured through the castle gates in a river of gold and silver and polished steel, three hundred strong, a pride of bannermen and knights, 
of sworn swords and free riders. Over their heads, a dozen golden banners whipped back and forth in the northern wind, emblazoned the crown stag of Baratheon. Ned knew many of the writers. There came Sir Jamie Lannister, with hair as bright as beaten gold, and there Sandor Clegane, with his terrible burned face. The tall boy beside him could only be the crown prince, and that stunted little man behind them was surely the imp, Tyrion Lannister. Yet the huge man at the head of the column, flanked by two knights in snow-white cloaks of the King's Guard, seemed almost a stranger to Ned, until he vaulted off the back of his war-horse with a familiar roar and crushed him in a bone-crunching hug. Ned! <laughs> but it's good to see that frozen face of yours. The King looked him over from top to bottom and laughed. <laughs> you have not changed at all. Would that Ned have been able to say the same. Fifteen years passed when they had ridden forth to win a throne. The Lord of Storm's End had been a clean-shaven, clear-eyed, and muscled like a maiden's fantasy. Six and a half feet tall, he towered over lesser men. And when he'd donned his armour and the great antlered helmet of his house, he became a veritable giant. He had a giant's strength, too. His weapon of choice a spiked iron war hammer that Ned could scarcely lift. In those days, the smell of leather and blood had clung to him like perfume. Now it was perfume that clung to him like perfume, and he had a girth to match his height. Ned had last seen the king nine years before, during Bale and Greyjoy's rebellion, when the stag and the dire wolf joined to end the pretensions of the self-proclaimed king of the Iron Islands. Since the night they had stood side by side in Grey Joy's fallen stronghold, where Robert had accepted the rebel lord's surrender, and Ned had taken his son Theon as hostage and ward, the king had gained at least eight stone. A beard as coarse and black as iron wire covered his jaw to hide his double chin and the sag of his royal jowls, but nothing could hide his stomach or the dark circles under his eyes. Yet Robert was Ned's king now, not just a friend. So he said only, Your Grace, Winterfell is yours. By then the others were dismounting as well, and grooms were coming forward for their mounts. Robert's queen, Cersei Lannister, entered on foot with her younger children. The wheelhouse in which they had ridden, a huge double-decked carriage of oiled oak and gilded metal, pulled by forty heavy draught horses, was too wide to pass through the castle gate. Ned knelt in the snow to kiss the king's ring, while Robert embraced Catalon like a long-lost sister. Then the children had been brought forward, introduced and approved of by both sides. No sooner had these formalities of greeting been completed than the king had said to his hosts, uh, Take me down to the crypt, Edard. I would pay my respects. Ned loved him for that, for remembering her, Still, after all these years, he called for a lantern. No other words were needed. The Queen had begun to protest. They had been riding since dawn. Everyone was tired and cold. Surely they should refresh themselves first. The dead would wait. She had said no more than that. Robert had looked at her, and her twin brother Jamie had taken her quietly by the arm, and she had said no more. They went down to the crypt together, Ned and this king he scarcely recognized. The winding stone steps were narrow. Ned went first for the lantern. 
I was starting to think we would never reach Winterfell, Robert complained as they descended. In the south, the way they talk about my seven kingdoms, a man forgets that your part is as big as the other six combined. I trust you enjoyed your journey, Your Grace. Robert snorted. <laughs> Bogs and forests and fields, and scarcely a decent inn north of the Neck. I've never seen such a vast emptiness. Where are all your people? Likely they were too shy to come out, Ned jested. He could feel the chill coming up the stairs, a cold breath from deep within the earth. Kings are a rare sight in the north. Robert snorted. <laughs> More likely they were hiding under the snow. Snow, Ned! The king put one hand on the wall to steady himself as they descended. Late summer snows are common enough, Ned said. I hope they did not trouble you. They are usually mild. The others take your mild snows, Robert swore. What will this place be like in winter, I shuddered to think. Oh, the winters are hard, Ned admitted, but the Starks will endure, they always have. <laughs> you need to come south, Robert told him. You need a taste of summer before it flees. In High Garden, there are fields of golden roses that stretch away as far as the eye can see. The fruits are so ripe, they explode in your mouth. Melons, peaches, fire plums, you've never tasted such sweetness. You'll see, I brought you some. Even at storm's end, with that good wind off the bay, the days are so hot you can barely move. And you ought to see the towns, Ned. Flowers everywhere. The market's bursting with food. The summer wine's so cheap and so good you can get drunk just breathing the air. Everyone is fat and drunk and rich. <laughs> he laughed and slapped his own ample stomach a thump. And the girls, Ned! He exclaimed, his eyes sparkling. I swear, the women lose all modesty in the heat. They swim naked in the river, right beneath the castle. Even in the streets, it's too damned hot for wool or fur, so they go round in these short gowns. Silk, if they have the silver, and cotton if not. But it's all the same when they start sweating, and the cloth sticks to their skin. They might as well be naked. <laughs> the king laughed happily. Robert Baratheon had always been a man of huge appetites, a man who knew how to take his pleasures. That was not a charge anyone could lay at the door of Eddard Stark. Yet Ned could not help but notice that those pleasures were taking a toll on the king. Robert was breathing heavily by the time they reached the bottom of the stairs, his face red in the lantern light as they stepped out into the darkness of the crypt. "'Your Grace,' said Ned respectfully. He swept the lantern in a wide semicircle. Shadows moved and lurched. Flickering light touched the stones underfoot and brushed against a long procession of granite pillars that marched ahead, two by two into the dark. Between the pillars... The dead sat on their stone thrones against the walls, backs against the sepulchres that contained their mortal remains. She is down at the end with Father and Brandon. He led the way between the pillars, and Robert followed wordlessly, shivering in the subterranean chill. It was always cold down there. Their footsteps rang off the stones and echoed in the vault above as they walked among the dead of House Stark. The lords of Winterfell watched them pass. Their likenesses were carved into the stones that sealed the tombs. In long rows they sat, blind eyes, 
staring out into eternal darkness, while great stone direwolves curled round their feet. The shifting shadows made the stone figure seem to stir as the living passed by. By ancient custom, an iron longsword had been laid across the lap of each who had been lord of Winterfell to keep the vengeful spirits in their crypts. The oldest had long ago rusted away to nothing, leaving only a few red stains where the metal had rested on stone. Ned wondered if that meant those ghosts were free to roam the castle now. He hoped not. The first lords of Winterfell had been men hard as the land they ruled. In the centuries before the dragon lords came over the sea, they had sworn allegiance to no man, styling themselves the kings in the north. Ned stopped at last and lifted the oil lantern. The crypt continued on into darkness ahead of them, but beyond this point the tombs were empty and unsealed, black holes waiting for their dead, waiting for him and his children. Ned did not like to think on that. Here, he told his king. Robert nodded silently, knelt, and bowed his head. There were three tombs, side by side. Lord Rickard Stark, Ned's father, had a long, stern face. The stonemason had known him well. He sat with quiet dignity, stone fingers holding tight to the sword across his lap. But in life, all swords had failed him. In two smaller sepulchres, on either side were his children. Brandon had been twenty when he died, strangled, by order of the mad king Aerys de Garion, only a few short days before he was to wed Catelyn Tully of Riveron. His father had been forced to watch him die. He was a true heir, the eldest, born to rule. Lyanna had only been sixteen, a child woman of surpassing loveliness. Ned had loved her with all his heart. Robert had loved her even more. She was to have been his bride. She was more beautiful than that, the king said after a silence, his eyes lingering on Lyanna's face, as if he could will her back to life. Finally he rose, made awkward by his weight. Ah, oh, damn it, Ned. Did you have to bury her in a place like this? His voice was hoarse with remembered grief. She deserved more than darkness. She was a Stark of Winterfell, Ned said quietly. This is her place. She should be on a hill somewhere under a fruit tree, with the sun and clouds above her and the rain to wash her clean. I was with her when she died, Ned reminded the king. She wanted to come home, to rest beside Brandon and father. He could hear her still at times. Promise me, she had cried in a room that smelled of blood and roses. Promise me, Ned. The fever had taken her strength, and her voice had been faint as a whisper. But when he gave her his word, the fear had gone out of his sister's eyes. Ned remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life. The rose petals spilled from her palm, dead and black. After that, he remembered nothing. They had found him, still holding her body, silent with grief. The little Cranog man, Harlan Reed, had taken her hand from his. Ned could recall none of it. I bring her flowers when I can, he said. Leanna was fond of flowers. The king touched her cheek. 
his fingers brushing across the rough stone as gently as if it were living flesh. I vowed to kill Rhaegar for what he did to her. You did, Ned reminded him. Only once, Robert said bitterly. They had come together at the ford of the Trident while the battle crashed around them. Robert with his war hammer and his great antlered helm, the Targaryen prince armoured all in black. On his breastplate was the three-headed dragon of his house, wrought all in rubies that flashed like fire in the sunlight. The waters of the Trident ran red around the hooves of their destriers as they circled and clashed again and again, until at last a crushing blow from Robert's hammer stove in the dragon and the chest beneath it. When Ned had finally come on the scene, Rhaegar lay dead in the stream, while men of both armies scrambled in the swirling waters for rubies knocked free of his armor. In my dreams, I kill him every night, Robert admitted. A thousand deaths will still be less than he deserves. There was nothing Ned could say to that. After a quiet, he said, We should return, Your Grace. Your wife will be waiting. The others take my wife, Robert muttered sourly, but he started back the way they had come, his footsteps falling heavily. And if I hear your grace once more, I'll have your head on a spike. We are more to each other than that. I had not forgotten, Ned replied quietly. When the king did not answer, he said, Tell me about John. Robert shook his head. I've never seen a man sicken so quickly. We gave a tawny on my son's name day. If you had seen John then, you would have sworn he would live forever. A fortnight later, he was dead. The sickness was like a fire in his gut. It burned right through him. He paused beside a pillar before the tomb of a Lundead Stark. I love that old man. We both did, Ned paused a moment. Catelyn fears for her sister. How does Lysa bear her grief? Robert's mouth gave a bitter twist. Not well, in truth, he admitted. I think losing John has driven the woman mad, Ned. She has taken the boy back to the Eyrie. Against my wishes, I'd hoped to foster him with Tywin Lannister at Casterly Rock. John had no brothers, no other sons. Was I supposed to leave him to be raised by women? Ned would sooner entrust a child to a pit viper than Lord Tywin, but he left his doubts unspoken. Some old wounds never truly heal, and bleed again at the slightest word. The wife has lost the husband, he said carefully. Perhaps a mother feared to lose the son. The boy is very young. Six, and sickly, and Lord of the Eyrie, God have mercy, the king swore. Lord Tywin has never taken a ward before. Lysa ought to have been honoured. The Lannisters are a great and noble house. She refused to even hear of it. Then she left in the dead of night, without so much as a by-your-leave. Cersei was furious. He sighed deeply. Ah, the boy is my namesake. Did you know that? Robert Arryn. I'm sworn to protect him. How can I do that if his mother steals him away? I will take him as ward if you wish, Ned said. Lysa should consent to that. She and Catelyn were close as girls, and she would be welcome here as well. A generous offer, my friend, the king said, but too late. Lord Tywin has already given his consent. Fostering the boy elsewhere would be a grievous affront to him. 
I have more concern for my nephew's welfare than I do for Lannister pride, Ned declared. That is because you do not sleep with a Lannister, Robert laughed, the sound rattling among the tombs and bouncing from the vaulted ceiling. His smile was a flash of white teeth in the thicket of the huge black beard. Ah, Neddy said, <laughs> you're still too serious. He put a massive arm around Ned's shoulders. I had planned to wait a few days to speak to you, but I see now there's no need for it. Come, walk with me. They started back down between the pillars. Blind stone eyes seemed to follow them as they passed. The king kept his arm around Ned's shoulder. You must have wondered why I finally came north to Winterfell after so long. Ned had his suspicions, but he did not give them voice. For the joy of my company, surely, he said lightly. And there is the wall. You need to see it, Your Grace, to walk along its battlements and talk to those who man it. The Night's Watch is a shadow of what it once was. Benjamin says, No doubt I will hear what your brother says soon enough, Robert said. The wall has stood for what? Eight thousand years. It can keep a few days more. I have more pressing concerns. These are difficult times. I need good men about me. Men like John Aaron. He served the Lord of the Airy as Warden of the East, as the Hand of the King. He will not be easy to replace. His son, Ned began, his son will succeed to the Airy and all its incomes, Robert said brusquely. No more. That took Ned by surprise. He stopped startled and turned to look at his king. The words came unbidden. The Aarons have always been wardens of the East. The title goes with the domain. Perhaps when he comes of age, the honour can be restored to him, Robert said. I have this year to think of, and next. A six-year-old boy is no war leader, Ned. In peace, the title is only an honour. Let the boy keep it, for his father's sake, if not his own. Surely you owe John that much for his service. The king was not pleased. He took his arm from around Ned's shoulders. John's service was a duty he owed his liege lord. I'm not ungrateful, Ned. You of all men ought to know that. But the son is not the father. A mere boy cannot hold the east. Then his tone softened. Enough of this. There is more important office to discuss, and I would not argue with you. Robert grasped Ned by the elbow. I have need of you, Ned. I'm yours to command, Your Grace, always. They were words he had to say, and so he said them, apprehensive about what might come next. Robert scarcely seemed to hear him. Those years we spent in the area, gods, they were good years. I want you at my side again, Ned. I want you down in King's Landing, not up here at the end of the world, where you're no damn use to anybody. Robert looked into the darkness for a moment as melancholy as a stark. I swear to you, sitting a throne is a thousand times harder than winning one. Law's a tedious business, and counting copies is worse, and, and the people, there's no end of them. I sit on that damnable iron chair and listen to them complain until my mind is numb and my ass is raw. They all want something, money or land or justice. The lies they tell, and my lord and ladies are no better. I'm surrounded by flatterers and fools. It, it can drive a man to madness, Ned. Half of them don't dare tell me the truth, and the, the other half can't find it. There are nights I wish we had lost at the Trident. Uh, no, not truly, but... I understand, Ned said softly. Robert looked at him. 
I think you do. If so, you're the only one, my old friend. He smiled. Lord Eddard Stark, I would name you the Hand of the King. Ned dropped to one knee. The offer did not surprise him. What other reason could Robert have for coming so far? The Hand of the King was the second most powerful man in the Seven Kingdoms. He spoke with the King's voice, commanded the King's armies, drafted the King's laws. At times he even sat upon the Iron Throne to dispense King's justice when the King was absent or sick or otherwise indisposed. Robert was offering him a responsibility as large as the realm itself. It was the last thing in the world he wanted. Your Grace, he said, I am not worthy of the honour. Robert groaned with good-humoured impatience. If I wanted to honour you, I'd let you retire. I'm planning to make you run the kingdom and fight the wars while I eat and drink and wench myself into an early grave. <laughs> he slapped his gut and grinned. You know the saying about the king and his hand? Ned knew the saying. What the king dreams, he said, the hand builds. <laughs> I've, I've bedded a fish maid once who told me that the low-born have a choice away to put it. The king eats, they say, and the hand takes the shit. <laughs> he threw back his head and roared with laughter. The echoes rang through the darkness, and all around them the dead of Winterfell seemed to watch with cold and disapproving eyes. Finally the laughter dwindled and stopped. Ned was still on one knee, his eyes upraised. Damn it, Ned, the king complained. You might at least humour me with a smile. They say it grows so cold up here in winter that a man's laughter freezes in his throat and chokes him to death, Ned said evenly. Perhaps that is why the Starks have so little humour. Come south with me, and I'll teach how to laugh again, the king promised. You help me win this damnable throne, now help me hold it. We were meant to rule together. If Lyanna had lived, we should have been brothers, bound by blood as well as affection. Well, it is not too late. I have a son, you have a daughter, eh? My Joff and your Sansa shall join our houses, as Lyanna and I might once have done. This offer did surprise him. Sansa is only eleven. Robert waved an impatient hand. Old enough for betrothal. The marriage can wait a few years, the king smiled. Now stand up and say yes, curse you. Nothing would give me greater pleasure, your grace, Ned answered. He hesitated. These honours are all so unexpected. May I have some time to consider? I need to tell my wife. Yes, yes, of course. Tell Catelyn. Sleep on it if you must. The king reached on clasped Ned by the hand, and pulled him roughly to his feet. Just don't keep me waiting too long. I'm not the most patient of men. For a moment, Eddard Stark was filled with a terrible sense of foreboding. This was his place, here in the north. He looked at the stone figures all around him, breathed deep in the chill silence of the crypt. He could feel the eyes of the dead. They were all listening, he knew, and winter was coming. John There were times, 
Not many, but a few, when Jon Snow was glad he was a bastard. As he filled his wine cup once more from a passing flagon, it struck him that this might be one of them. He settled back in his place on the bench among the younger squires and drank. The sweet, fruity taste of summer wine filled his mouth and brought a smile to his lips. The great hall of Winterfell was hazy with smoke and heavy with the smell of roasted meat and fresh-baked bread. Its grey stone walls were draped with banners, white, gold, crimson, the direwolf of Stark, Baratheon's crowned stag, the line of Lannister. A singer was playing the high harp and reciting a ballad, but down at this end of the hall his voice could scarcely be heard above the roar of the fire, the clangour of pewter plates and cups, and the low mutter of a hundred drunken conversations. It was the fourth hour of the welcoming feast laid for the king. John's brothers and sisters had been seated with the royal children beneath the raised platform where Lord and Lady Stark hosted the king and queen. In honour of the occasion, his lord father would doubtless permit each child a glass of wine, but no more than that. Down here on the benches, there was no one to stop John drinking as much as he had a thirst for. And he was finding that he had a man's thirst, to the raucous delight of the youths around him, who urged him on every time he drained a glass. They were fine company, and John relished the stories they were telling, tales of battle and bedding and the hunt. He was certain that his companions were more entertaining than the king's offspring. He had sated his curiosity about the visitors when they had made their entrance. The procession had passed not a foot from the place he had been given on the bench, and John had gotten a good long look at them all. His lord father had come first, escorting the queen. She was as beautiful as men said. A jeweled tiara gleamed amidst her long golden hair, its emeralds a perfect match for the green of her eyes. His father helped her up the steps to the dais and led her to her seat. But the queen never so much as looked at him. Even at fourteen, John could see through her smile. Next had come King Robert himself, with Lady Stark in his arm. The king was a great disappointment to John. His father had talked of him often. The peerless Robert Baratheon, demon of the trident, the fiercest warrior of the realm, a giant among princes. John saw only a fat man, red-faced under his beard, sweating through his silks. He walked like a man half in his cups. After them came the children, little Rickonfers, managing the long walk with all the dignity a three-year-old could muster. John had to urge him on when he stopped to visit. Close behind came Rob, in grey wool trimmed with white, the stark colours. He had the Princess Marcella on his arm. She was a wisp of a girl, not quite eight, her hair a cascade of golden curls under a jewelled net. John noticed the shy look she gave Rob as they passed between the tables and the timid way she smiled at him. He decided she was insipid. Rob didn't even have the sense to realize how stupid she was. He was grinning like a fool. His half-sisters escorted the royal princes. Arya was paired with plump young Tommen, whose white blonde hair was longer than hers. Sansa, two years older, drew the crown prince, Joffrey Baratheon. He was twelve, younger than John or Rob, but taller than either, to John's vast dismay. Prince Joffrey had his sister's hair and his mother's deep green eyes. A thick tangle of blonde curls dripped down past his golden choker and high velvet collar. 
Sansa looked radiant as she walked beside him. But John did not like Joffrey's pouty lips or the bored, disdainful way he looked at Winterfell's great hall. He was more interested in the pair that came behind him, the Queen's brothers, the Lannisters of Casterly Rock, the Lion and the Imp. There was no mistaking which was which. Sir Jamie Lannister was twin to Queen Cersei, tall and golden, with flashing green eyes and a smile that cut like a knife. He wore crimson silk, high black boots, a black satin cloak. On the breast of his tunic, the lion of his house was embroidered in gold thread, roaring its defiance. They called him the Lion of Lannister to his face and whispered, Kingslayer, behind his back. John found it hard to look away from him. This is what a king should look like, he thought to himself as the man passed. Then he saw the other one, waddling along, half hidden by his brother's side. Tyrion Lannister, the youngest of Lord Tywin's brood, and by far the ugliest. All that the guards had given to Cersei and Jaime, they had denied Tyrion. He was a dwarf, half his brother's height, struggling to keep pace on stunted legs. His head was too large for his body, with a brute squashed-in face beneath a swollen shelf of brow. One green eye and one black one peered from under a lank fall of hair, so blonde it seemed white. John watched him with fascination. The last of the High Lords to enter were his uncle, Benjamin Stark, of the Night's Watch, and his father's ward, young Theon Greyjoy. Benjamin gave John a warm smile as he went by. Theon ignored him utterly, but there was nothing new in that. After all had been seated, toasts were made. Thanks were given and returned, and then the feasting began. John had started drinking then, and he had not stopped. Something rubbed against his leg beneath the table. John saw red eyes staring up at him. Hungry again? he asked. There was still half a honey chicken in the center of the table. John reached out to tear off a leg. Then he had a better idea. He knifed the bird hole and let the carcass slide to the floor between his legs. Ghost ripped into it in savage silence. His brothers and sisters had not been permitted to bring their old wolves to the banquet. But there were more curs than John could count at this end of the hall. And no one had said a word about his pup. He told himself he was fortunate in that too. His eyes stung. John rubbed at them savagely, cursing the smoke. He swallowed another gulp of wine and watched his dire wolf devour the chicken. Dogs moved between the tables, trailing after the serving girls. One of them, a black mongrel bitch with long yellow eyes, caught a scent of the chicken. She stopped and edged onto the bench to get a share. John watched the confrontation. The bitch growled low in her throat and moved closer. Ghost looked up, silent, and fixed the dog with those hot red eyes. The bitch snapped an angry challenge. She was three times the size of the dire wolf pup. Ghost did not move. He stood over his prize and opened his mouth, baring his fangs. The bitch tensed, barked again, then thought better of this fight. She turned and slunk away, with one last defiant snap to save her pride. Ghost went back to his meal. John grinned and reached under the table to ruffle the shaggy white fur. The direwolf looked up at him, nipped gently at his hand, then went back to eating. Is this one of the direwolves I've heard so much about? 
a familiar voice asked close at hand. John looked up happily as his Uncle Ben put a hand on his head and ruffled his hair much as John had ruffled the wolf's. Yes, he said, his name is Ghost. One of the squires interrupted the bawdy story he'd been telling to make room at the table for their lord's brother. Benjamin Stark straddled the bench with long legs and took the wine cup out of John's hand. Summer wine, he said after a taste. Nothing so sweet. <laughs> How many cups have you had, John? John smiled. Ben Stark laughed. As I feared. Oh, <laughs> well, I believe I was younger than you the first time I got truly and sincerely drunk. He snagged a roasted onion, dripping brown with gravy from a nearby trencher, and bit into it. It crunched. His uncle was sharp-featured and gaunt as a mountain crag, but there was always a hint of laughter in his blue-gray eyes. He dressed in black, as befitted a man of the night's watch. Tonight it was rich black velvet, with high leather boots and a wide belt with a silver buckle. A heavy silver chain was looped round his neck. Benjamin watched Ghost with amusement as he ate his onion. A very quiet wolf, he observed. He's not like the others, John said. He never makes a sound. That's why I named him Ghost. That, and because he's white. The others are all dark, grey or black. There are still dire walls beyond the wall. We hear them on our rangings. Benjamin Stark gave John a long look. Don't you usually eat at table with your brothers? Most times, John answered in a flat voice, but tonight Lady Stark thought it might give insult to the royal family to see the bastard among them. I see. His uncle glanced over his shoulder at the raised table at the far end of the hall. My brother does not seem very festive tonight. John had noticed that, too. A bastard had to learn to notice things, to read the truth that people hid behind their eyes. His father was observing all the courtesies, but there was a tightness in him that John had seldom seen before. He said little, looking out over the hall with hooded eyes, seeing nothing. Two seats away, the king had been drinking heavily all night. His broad face was flushed behind his great black beard. He made many a toast, laughed loudly at every jest, and attacked each dish like a starving man. But beside him, the queen seemed as cold as an ice sculpture. The queen is angry too, John told his uncle in a low, quiet voice. Father took the king down to the crypts this afternoon. The queen didn't want him to go. Benjamin gave John a careful, measuring look. You don't miss much, do you, John? We could use a man like you on the wall. John swelled with pride. Rob is a stronger lance than I am, but I am the better sword, and Holland says I set a horse as well as anyone in the castle. Notable achievements. Take me with you when you go back to the wall, John said in a sudden rush. Father will give me leave to go if you ask him. I know he will. Uncle Benjamin studied his face carefully. Mm, the wall is a hard place for a boy, John. I'm almost a man grown, John protested. I will turn fifteen on my next name day, and Maester Lewin says bastards grow up faster than other children. Well, that's true enough, Benjamin said with a downward twist of his mouth. He took John's cup from the table, filled it fresh from a nearby pitcher, and drank down a long swallow. Darien Targaryen was only fourteen when he conquered Dawn, John said. The young dragon was one of his heroes. A conquest that lasted a summer, his uncle pointed out. Your boy king lost 10,000 men taking the place. 
another fifty trying to hold it. Someone should have told him that war isn't a game. He took another sip of wine. Also, he said, wiping his mouth, Darren Targaryen was only eighteen when he died. Or have you forgotten that part? I forget nothing, John boasted. The wine was making him bold. He tried to sit very straight to make himself seem taller. I want to serve in the night's watch, uncle. He had thought on it long and hard, lying abed at night, while his brother slept around him. Rob would some day inherit Winterfell, would command great armies as the Warden of the North. Bran and Rickon would be Rob's bannermen and rule Holdfast in his name. His sisters, Arya and Sansa, would marry the heirs of other great houses and go south as mistress of castles of their own. But what place could a bastard hope to earn? You don't know what you're asking, John. The Night's Watch is a sworn brotherhood. We have no families. None of us will ever father sons. Our wife is duty. Our mistress is honour. A bastard can have honour too, John said. I'm ready to swear your oath. You're a boy of fourteen, Benjamin said. Not a man, not yet. Until you have known a woman, you cannot understand what you would be giving up. I don't care about that, John said hotly. You might, if you knew what it meant, Benjamin said. If you knew what the oath would cost you, you might be less eager to pay the price, son. John felt anger rise inside him. I am not your son. Benjamin Stark stood up. More's a pity. Put a hand on John's shoulders. Come back to me after you've fathered a few bastards of your own, and we'll see how you feel. John trembled. I will never father a bastard, he said carefully. Never. He spat it out like venom. Suddenly he realized that the table had fallen silent. They were all looking at him. He felt the tears begin to well behind his eyes. He pushed himself to his feet. I must be excused, he said with the last of his dignity. He whirled and bolted before they could see him cry. He must have drunk more wine than he had realized. He got his feet tangled onto him as he tried to leave, and he lurched sideways into a serving girl and sent a flagon of spiced wine crashing to the floor. Laughter boomed all around him, and John felt hot tears on his cheeks. Someone tried to steady him. He wrenched free of their grip and ran, half blind, for the door. Ghosts followed close at his heels, out into the night. The yard was quiet and empty. A lone sentry stood high on the battlements of the inner wall, his cloak pulled tight around him against the cold. He looked bored and miserable as he huddled there alone, but John would have traded places with him in an instant. Otherwise the castle was dark and deserted. John had seen an abandoned holdfast once, a drear place where nothing moved but the wind and the stones kept silent about whatever people had lived there. Winterfell reminded him of that tonight. The sounds of music and song spilled through the open windows behind him. They were the last things John wanted to hear. He wiped away his tears on the sleeve of his shirt, furious that he had let them fall, and started to go. "'Boy!' a voice called out to him. John turned. Tyrion Lannister was sitting on the ledge above the door to the great hall, looking for all the world like a gargoyle. The dwarf grinned down at him. Is that animal a wolf? A dire wolf, John said. His name is Ghost. He stared up at the little man, 
his disappointment suddenly forgotten. What are you doing up there? Why aren't you at the feast? Too hot, too noisy, and I'd drunk too much wine, the dwarf told him. I learned long ago that it's considered rude to vomit on your brother. Might I have a closer look at your wolf? John hesitated and nodded slowly. Can you climb down, or shall I bring a ladder? Oh, bleed that, the little man said. He pushed himself off the ledge into empty air. John gasped, then watched with awe as Tyrion Lannister spun around in a tight ball, landed lightly on his hands, then vaulted backward onto his legs. Ghost backed away from him uncertainly. The dwarf dusted himself off and laughed. <laughs> I believe I've frightened you, wolf. <laughs> My apologies. He's not scared, John said. He knelt and called out, Ghost, come here, come on. That's it. The wolf pup padded closer and nuzzled at John's face, but he kept a wary eye on Tyrion Lannister, and when the dwarf reached out to pet him, he drew back and bared his fangs in a silent snarl. Shy, isn't he? Lannister observed. Sit, ghost, John commanded. That's it, keep still. He looked up at the dwarf. You can touch him now. He won't move until I tell him to. I've been training him. I see, Lannister said. He ruffled the snow-white fur between ghost's ears and said, Nice wolf. If I wasn't here, he'd tear out your throat, John said. It wasn't actually true yet, but it would be. In that case, you had better stay close, the dwarf said. He cocked his oversized head to one side and looked John over with his mismatched eyes. I'm Tyrion Lannister. I know, John said. He rose. Standing he was taller than the dwarf, it made him feel strange. You're Ned Stark's bastard, aren't you? John felt a coldness pass right through him. He pressed his lips together and said nothing. Did I offend you? Lannister said. Sorry, dwarfs don't have to be tactful. Generations of capering fools in Motley have won me the right to dress badly and to say any damn thing that comes into my head. He grinned. You are the bastard, though. Let Eddard Stark is my father, John admitted stiffly. Lannister studied his face. Yes, he said, I can see it. You have more of the North in you than your brothers. Half-brothers, John corrected. He was pleased by the dwarf's comment, but he tried not to let it show. Let me give you some counsel, bastard, Lannister said. Never forget what you are, for surely the world will not. Make it your strength. Then it can never be your weakness. Armour yourself in it and it will never be used to hurt you. John was in no mood for anyone's counsel. What do you know about being a bastard? Oh, all dwarfs are bastards in their father's eyes. You are your mother's true-born son of Lannister. Am I? the dwarf replied sardonically. Do tell my lord father. My mother died birthing me, and he's never been sure. I don't even know who my mother was, John said. Some woman, no doubt. Most of them are. He favoured John with a rueful grin. Remember this, boy. All dwarfs may be bastards. Yet not all bastards need be dwarfs. And with that, he turned and sauntered back into the feast, whistling a tune. When he opened the door, the light from within threw his shadow clear across the yard. And for just a moment, Tyrion Lannister stood tall as a king. Catelyn
Of all the rooms in Winterfell's great keep, Catelyn's bedchambers were the hottest. She seldom had to light a fire. The castle had been built over natural hot springs, and the scalding waters rushed through the walls and chambers like blood through a man's body, driving the chill from the stone halls, filling the glass gardens with a moist warmth, keeping the earth from freezing. Open pools smoked day and night in a dozen small courtyards. That was a little thing in summer. In winter, it was the difference between life and death. Catelyn's bath was always hot and steaming, and her walls warmed to the touch. The warmth reminded her of Riveron, of days in the sun with Lysa and Edmure, but Ned could never abide the heat. The Starks were made for the cold, he would tell her, and she would laugh and tell him that in that case they had certainly built their castle in the wrong place. So when they had finished, Ned rolled over and climbed from her bed, as he had a thousand times before. He crossed the room, pulled back the heavy tapestries, and threw open the high, narrow windows one by one, letting the night air into the chamber. The wind swirled around him as he stood facing the dark, naked and empty-handed. Catelyn pulled the furs to her chin and watched him. He looked somehow smaller and more vulnerable, like the youth she had wed in the sept at River Run, fifteen long years gone. Her loins still ached from the urgency of his love-making. It was a good ache. She could fill his seed within her. She prayed that it might quicken there. It had been three years since Rickon. She was not too old. She could give him another son. I will refuse him, Ned said as he turned back to her. His eyes were haunted, his voice thick with doubt. Catelyn sat up in the bed. You cannot, you must not. My duties are here in the north. I have no wish to be Robert's hand. He will not understand that. He is a king now, and kings are not like other men. If you refuse to serve him, he will wonder why, and sooner or later he will begin to suspect that you oppose him. Can't you see the danger that would put us in? Ned shook his head, refusing to believe. Robert would never harm me or any of mine. We were closer than brothers. He loves me. If I refuse him, he will roar and curse and bluster, and in a week we will laugh about it together. I know the man. You knew the man, she said. The king is a stranger to you. Catelyn remembered the dire wolf dead in the snow, the broken antler lodged deep in her throat. She had to make him see. Pride is everything to a king, my lord. Robert came all the way to see you, to bring you these great honors. You cannot throw them back in his face. Honors? <laughs> Ned laughed bitterly. In his eyes, yes, she said. And in yours? And in mine, she blazed, angry now. Why couldn't he see? He offers his own son in marriage to our daughter. What else would you call that? Sansa might some day be queen. Her sons could rule from the wall to the mountains of dawn. What's so wrong with that? Gods! Catelyn, Sansa is only eleven, Ned said. And Joffrey... Joffrey is... She finished for him. Crown prince, an heir to the Iron Throne. And I was only twelve when my father promised me to your brother, Brandon. That brought a bitter twist to Ned's mouth. Brandon... Yes, Brandon would know what to do. He always did. It was all meant for Brandon. You, Winterfell, everything. 
He was born to be a king's hand and a father to queens. I never asked for this cup to pass to me. Perhaps not, Catelyn said. But Brandon is dead, and the cup has passed, and you must drink from it, like it or not. Ned turned away from her, back to the night. He stood staring out in the darkness, watching the moon and the stars, perhaps, or perhaps the sentries on the wall. Catelyn softened then, to see his pain. Eddard Stark had married her in Brandon's place, as custom decreed. But the shadow of his dead brother still lay between them, as did the other, the shadow of the woman he would not name, the woman who had borne him his bastard son. She was about to go to him when the knock came at the door, loud and unexpected. Ned turned, frowning. What is it? Desmond's voice came through the door. My lord, Maester Lewin is without and begs urgent audience. You told him I had left orders not to be disturbed? Yes, my lord, he insists. Oh, very well, send him in. Ned crossed to the wardrobe and slipped on a heavy robe. Catelyn realized suddenly how cold it had become. She sat up in bed, pulled the furs to her chin. Perhaps we should close the windows, she suggested. Ned nodded absently. Maester Lewin was shown in. The maester was a small grey man. His eyes were grey and quick, and saw much. His hair was grey, what little the years had left him. His robe was grey wool, trimmed with white fur, the stark colours. Its great floppy sleeves had pockets hidden inside. Lewin was always tucking things into those sleeves and producing other things from them. Books, messages, strange artefacts, toys for the children. With all he kept hidden in his sleeves, Catelyn was surprised that Maester Lewin could lift his arms at all. The maester waited until the door had closed behind him before he spoke. My lord, he said to Ned, pardon for disturbing your rest. I have been left a message. Ned looked irritated. Been left? By whom? Has there been a rider? I was not told. Uh, there was no rider, my lord. Only a carved wooden box left on a table in my observatory while I napped. Uh, my servants saw no one, but it must have been brought by someone in the king's party. We have had no other visitors from the south. A wooden box, you say? Catelyn said. Inside was a fine new lens for the observatory, for myrrh by the look of it. The lens crafters of myrrh are without equal, Ned frowned. He had little patience for this sort of thing. Catelyn knew. A lens, he said. What has that to do with me? I asked the same question, Maester Lewin said. Uh, clearly, there was more to this than the seeming. Under the heavy weight of her furs, Catelyn shivered. A lens is an instrument to help us see. Indeed it is. He figured the colour of his order, a heavy chain worn tight around the neck beneath his robe, each link forged from a different metal. Catelyn could feel dread stirring inside her once again. What is it that they would have us see more clearly? Uh, the very thing I asked myself, Maester Lewin, drew a tightly rolled paper out of his sleeve. I found the true message concealed within a false bottom. When I dismantled the box, the lens had come in, but it is not for my eyes. Ned held out his hand. Let me have it, then. Lewin did not stir. Pardons, my lord, the message is not for you, either. It's marked for the eyes of Lady Catelyn and her alone. M may I approach? 
Catelyn nodded, not trusting to speak. The maester placed the paper on the table beside the bed. It was sealed with a small blob of blue wax. Lewin bowed and began to retreat. Stay, Ned commanded him. His voice was grave. He looked at Catelyn. What is it, my lady, you're shaking? I'm afraid, she admitted. She reached out and took the letter in trembling hands. The furs dropped away from her nakedness, forgotten. In the blue wax was a moon and falcon seal of House Aaron. It's from Lysa. Catelyn looked at her husband. It will not make us glad, she told him. There is grief in this message, Ned. I can feel it. Ned frowned, his face darkened. Open it. Catelyn broke the seal. Her eyes moved over the words. At first they made no sense to her. Then she remembered. Lysa took no chances. When we were girls together, we had a private language, she and I. Can you read it? Yes, Catelyn admitted. Then tell us. Perhaps I should withdraw, Maester Lewin said. No, Catelyn said. We will need your counsel. She threw back the furs and climbed from the bed. The night air was as cold as the grave on her bare skin as she padded across the room. Maester Lewin averted his eyes. Even Ned looked shocked. What are you doing, he asked. Lighting a fire, Catelyn told him. She found a dressing gown and shrugged into it, then knelt over the cold hearth. Maester Lewin, Ned began. Maester Lewin has delivered all my children, Catelyn said. This is no time for false modesty. She slid the paper in among the kindling and placed the heavier logs on top of it. Ned crossed the room, took her by the arm, and pulled her to her feet. He held her there, his face inches from her. My lady, tell me. What was this message? Catelyn stiffened in his grasp. A warning, she said softly, if we have the wits to hear. His eyes searched her face. Go on. Lysa says John Aaron was murdered. His fingers tightened on her arm. By whom? The Lannisters, she told him. The Queen. Ned released his hold on her arm. There were deep red marks on her skin. Gods, he whispered. His voice was hoarse. Your sister's sick with grief. She cannot know what she is saying. She knows, Catelyn said. Lysa's impulsive, yes, but this message was carefully planned, carefully hidden. She knew it meant death if her letter fell into the wrong hands. To risk so much, she must have had more than mere suspicion. Catelyn looked at her husband. Now we truly have no choice. You must be Robert's hand. You must go south with him and learn the truth. She saw at once that Ned had reached a different conclusion. The only truths I know are here. The South is a nest of adders I would do better to avoid. Lewin plucked at his chain collar where it had chafed the soft skin of his throat. The hand of the king has great power, my lord, a power to find the truth of Lord Aaron's death, to bring his killers to the king's justice, power to protect Lady Aaron and her son, if the worst be true. Ned glanced helplessly around the bedchamber. Catelyn's heart went out to him, but she knew she could not take him in her arms just then. First, the victory must be won for her children's sake. You say you love Robert like a brother. Would you leave your brother surrounded by Lannisters? 
The others take both of you, Ned muttered darkly. He turned away from them and went to the window. She did not speak, nor did the maester. They waited quiet while Eddard Stark said a silent farewell to the home he loved. When he turned away from the window at last, his voice was tired and full of melancholy, and moisture glittered faintly in the corners of his eyes. My father went south once to answer the summons of a king. He never came home again. A different time, Mr. Lewin said. A different king. Yes, Ned said dully. He seated himself in a chair by the hearth. Catelyn, you shall stay here in Winterfell. His words were like an icy draught through her heart. No, she said, suddenly afraid. Was this to be her punishment? Never to see his face again, nor to feel his arms around her? Yes, Ned said, in words that would brook no argument. You must govern the North in my stead, while I run Robert's errands. There must always be a Stark in Winterfell. Rob is fourteen. Soon enough he will be a man grown. He must learn to rule, and I will not be here for him. Make him part of your councils. He must be ready when his time comes. Uh, God's will, not for many years, Maester Lewin murmured. Maester Lewin, I trust you as I would my own blood. Give my wife your voice in all things, great and small. Teach my son the things he needs to know. Winter is coming. Master Lewin nodded gravely. Then silence fell until Catelyn found her courage and asked the question whose answer she most dreaded. What of the other children? Ned stood, took her in his arms, and held her face close to his. Rickon is very young, he said gently. He should stay here with you and Rob. The others I would take with me. I could not bear it, Catelyn said, trembling. You must, he said. Sansa must wed Joffrey. That is clear now. We must give them no grounds to suspect our devotion. And it is past time that Arya learn the ways of a southern court. In a few years she will be of an age to marry too. Sansa would shine in the south, Catelyn thought to herself, and the guards knew that Arya needed refinement. Reluctantly, she let go of them in her heart. But not Bran. Never Bran. Yes, she said, but please, Ned, for the love you bear me, let Bran remain here at Winterfell. He's only seven. I was eight when my father sent me to foster at the Airy, Ned said. Sir Roderick tells me that there is bad feeling between Rob and Prince Joffrey. That is not healthy. Bran can bridge that distance. He's a sweet boy, quick to laugh, easy to love. Let him grow up with the young princes. Let him become their friend, as Robert became mine. Our house will be the safer for it. He was right. Caitlin knew it. It did not make the pain any easier to bear. She would lose all four of them then. Ned, and both girls, and her sweet, loving Bran. Only Rob and little Rickon would be left to her. She felt lonely already. Winterfell was such a vast place. Keep him off the walls, then, she said bravely. You know how Bran loves to climb. Ned kissed her tears from her eyes before they could fall. Thank you, my lady, he whispered.
This is hard, I know. What of Jun Snow, my lord? Maester Lewin asked. Catelyn tensed at the mention of the name. Ned felt the anger in her and pulled away. Many men fathered bastards. Catelyn had grown up with that knowledge. It came as no surprise to her in the first year of her marriage to learn that Ned had fathered a child on some girl chance met on campaign. He had a man's needs, after all, and they had spent that year apart. Ned offered the war in the south while she remained safe in her father's castle at Riveron. Her thoughts were more of Rob, the infant at her breast, than the husband she scarcely knew. He was welcome to whatever solace he might find between battles, and if his seed quickened, she expected he would see to the child's needs. He did more than that. The Starks were not like other men. Ned brought his bastard home with him, and called him son, for all the North to see. When the wars were over at last, and Catelyn rode to Winterfell, John and his wet nurse had already taken up residence. That cut deep. Ned would not speak of the mother, not so much as a word, but a castle has no secrets, and Catelyn heard her maids repeating tales they heard from the lips of her husband's soldiers. They whispered of Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning, deadliest of the seven knights of Aerys Kingsguard, and how their young lord had slain him in single combat. And they told how afterward Ned had carried Sir Arthur's sword back to the beautiful young sister who awaited him in a castle called Starfall on the shores of the Summer Sea. The Lady Ashara Dane, tall and fair, with haunting violet eyes. It taken her a fortnight to marshal her courage, but finally, in bed one night, Catelyn had asked her husband the truth of it, asked him to his face. That was the only time in all their years that Ned had ever frightened her. Never ask me about John, he said, cold as ice. He is my blood and that is all you need to know. And now I will learn where you heard that name, my lady. She had pledged to obey. She told him, and from that day on, the whispering had stopped, and Ashara Dane's name was never heard in Winterfell again. Whoever John's mother had been, Ned must have loved her fiercely, for nothing Catelyn said would persuade him to send the boy away. It was the one thing she could never forgive him. She had come to love her husband with all her heart, but she had never found it in her to love John. She might have overlooked a dozen bastards for Ned's sake, as long as they were out of sight. John was never out of sight, and as he grew, he looked more like Ned than any of the true-born sons she bore him. Somehow that made it worse. John must go, she said now. He and Rob are close, Ned said. I had hoped... He cannot stay here, Catelyn said, cutting him off. He is your son, not mine. I will not have him. It was hard, she knew, but no less the truth. Ned would do the boy no kindness by leaving him here at Winterfell. The look Ned gave her was anguished. You know I cannot take him south. There will be no place for him at court. A boy with a bastard's name? You know what they will say of him? He will be shunned. Catelyn armoured her heart against the mute appeal in her husband's eyes. They say your friend Robert has fathered a dozen bastards himself. And none of them has ever been seen at court, Ned blazed. 
The Lannister woman has seen to that. How can you be so damnably cruel, Catelyn? He is only a boy. He... His fury was on him. He might have said more and worse, but Maester Lewin got in. Another solution presents itself, he said, his voice quiet. Your brother Benjen came to me about John a few days ago. It seems the boy aspires to take the black. Ned looked shocked. He asked to join the Night's Watch. Catelyn said nothing. Let Ned work it out in his own mind. Her voice would not be welcome now. Yet gladly she would have kissed the maester just then. His was the perfect solution. Benjamin Stark was a sworn brother. John would be a son to him. The child he would never have. And in time, the boy would take the oath as well. He would father no sons who might some day contest with Catelyn's own grandchildren for Winterfell. Maester Lewin said, There is great honour in service on the wall, my lord. And even a bastard may rise high in the night's watch, Ned reflected. Still his voice was troubled. John is so young. If he asked this when he was a man grown, that would be one thing but a boy of fourteen. A hard sacrifice, Maester Lewin agreed. Yet these are hard times, my lord. His road is no crueler than yours or your lady's. Catelyn thought of the three children she must lose. It was not easy keeping silent then. Ned turned away from them to gaze out of the window, his long face silent and thoughtful. Finally he sighed and turned back. Very well, he said to Maester Lewin. I suppose it's for the best. I will speak to Ben. When uh, shall we tell John? the Maester asked. When I must. Preparations must be made. It will be a fortnight before we are ready to depart. I would sooner let John enjoy these last few days. Summer will end soon enough, and childhood as well. When the time comes, I will tell him myself. Arya. Arya's stitches were crooked again. She frowned down on them with dismay and glanced over to where her sister Sansa sat among the other girls. Sansa's needlework was exquisite. Everyone said so. Sansa's work is as pretty as she is, Scepter Mordain told their lady mother once. She has such fine, delicate hands. When Lady Catelyn had asked about Arya, the Scepter sniffed. <laughs> Arya has the hands of a blacksmith. Arya glanced furtively across the room, worried the Scepter Mordain might have read her thoughts, but the Scepter was paying her no attention today. She was sitting with the Princess Marcella, all smiles and admiration. It was not often that the Scepter was privileged to instruct a royal princess in the womanly arts, as she had said when the Queen brought Marcella to join them. Arya thought Marcella's stitches looked a little crooked too, but you would never know it from the way Scepter Mordain was cooing. She studied her own work again, looking for some way to salvage it, then sighed and put down the needle. She looked glumly at her sister. Sansa was chatting away happily as she worked. Beth Cassell, Sir Roderick's little girl, was sitting by her feet, listening to every word she said, and Jane Poole was leaning over to whisper something in her ear. "'What are you talking about?' Arya asked suddenly. Jane gave a startled look, then giggled. Sansa looked abashed. Beth blushed. No one answered. "'Tell me,' 
Arya said. Jane glanced over to make certain that Septim Ordane was not listening. Marcella said something then, and the Scepter laughed along with the rest of the ladies. We were talking about the prince, Sansa said, her voice soft as a kiss. Arya knew which prince she meant. Joffrey, of course, the tall, handsome one. Sansa got to sit with him at the feast. Arya had to sit with the little, fat one, naturally. Joffrey likes your sister, Jane whispered, proud as if she had something to do with it. She was the daughter of Winterfell's steward and Sansa's dearest friend. He told her she was very beautiful. He's going to marry her, little Beth said dreamily, hugging herself. Then Sansa will be queen of all the realm. Sansa had the grace to blush. She blushed prettily. She did everything prettily, Arya thought with dull resentment. Beth, you shouldn't make up stories, Sansa corrected the younger girl, gently stroking her hair to take the harshness out of her words. She looked at Arya. What do you think of Prince Joff's sister? He's very gallant, don't you think? John says he looks like a girl, Arya said. Sansa sighed as she stitched. Oh, poor John, she said. He gets jealous because he's a bastard. He's our brother, Arya said, much too loudly. Her voice cut through the afternoon quiet of the tower room. Scepter Mordain raised her eyes. She had a bony face, sharp eyes, and a thin, lipless mouth made for frowning. It was frowning now. What are you talking about, children? Our half-brother, Sansa corrected, soft and precise. She smiled for the scepter. Ari and I were remarking how pleased we were to have the princess with us today, she said. Scepter Mordane nodded. Indeed, a great honor for us all. Princess Marcella smiled uncertainly at the compliment. Arya, why aren't you at work? the scepter asked. She rose to her feet, starched skirts rustling as she started across the room. Let me see your stitches. Arya wanted to scream. It was just like Sansa to go and attract the scepter's attention. Here, she said, surrendering her work. The scepter examined the fabric. Arya, 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 she said, this will not do, this will not do at all. Everyone was looking at her. It was too much. Sansa was too well-bred to smile at her sister's disgrace, but Jane was smirking on her behalf. Even Princess Marcella looked sorry for her. Arya felt tears filling her eyes. She pushed herself out of her chair and bolted for the door. Septa Mordain called after her. Arya, come back here. Don't you take another step. Your lady mother will hear of this. In front of our royal princess, too, you'll shame us all. Arya stopped at the door and turned back, biting her lip. The tears were running down her cheeks now. She managed a stiff little bow to Marcella. By your leave, my lady. Marcella blinked at her and looked to her ladies for guidance. But if she was uncertain, Septim Ordain was not. Just where do you think you're going, Arya? The Scepter demanded. Arya glared at her. I have to go and shoe a horse, she said sweetly, taking a brief satisfaction in the shock on the scepter's face. Then she whirled and made her exit, running down the steps as fast as her feet would take her. It wasn't fair. Sansa had everything. Sansa was two years older. Maybe by the time Arya had been born, there had been nothing left. Often it felt that way. Sansa could sew and dance and sing. She wrote poetry. She knew how to dress. She played the high harp.
and the bells. Worse, she was beautiful. Sansa had gotten their mother's fine high cheekbones and the thick auburn hair of the Tullys. Arya took after their lord father. Her hair was a lusterless brown, and her face was long and solemn. Jane used to call her Arya Horseface, a neigh when she came near. It hurt that the one thing Arya could do better than her sister was ride a horse. Well, that, and manage a household. Sansa had never had much of a head for figures. If she did marry Prince Joff, Arya hoped for his sake that he had a good steward. Nymeria was waiting for her in the guardroom at the bottom of the stairs. She bounded to her feet as soon as she caught sight of Arya. Arya grinned. The wolf pup loved her, even if no one else did. They went everywhere together, and Nymeria slept in her room at the foot of her bed. If mother had not forbidden it, Arya would gladly have taken the wolf with her to needlework. Let Septimor Dane complain about her stitches then. Nymeria nipped eagerly at her hand as Arya untied her. She had yellow eyes. When they caught the sunlight, they gleamed like two golden coins. Arya had named her after the warrior queen of the Rhoyne, who had led her people across the narrow sea. That had been a great scandal, too. Sansa, of course, had named her pup Lady. Arya made a face and hugged the wolfling tight. Nymeria licked her ear, and she giggled. By now, Septimondaine would certainly have sent word to her lady mother. If she went to her room, they would find her. Arya did not care to be found. She had a better notion. The boys were at practice in the yard. She wanted to see Rob put gallant Prince Joffrey flat on his back. Come, she whispered to Nymeria. She got up and ran, the wolf coming hard at her heels. There was a window in the covered bridge between the armory and the great keep, where you had a view of the whole yard. That was where they headed. They arrived, flushed and breathless, to find John seated on the sill, one leg drawn up languidly to his chin. He was watching the action so absorbed that he seemed unaware of her approach until his white wolf moved to meet them. Nymeria stalked closer unwary feet. Ghost, already larger than his litter mates, smelled her, gave her ear a careful nip, and settled back down. John gave her a curious look. Shouldn't you be working on your stitches, little sister? Arya made a face at him. I wanted to see them fight. He smiled. Come here, then. Arya climbed up on the window and sat beside him to a chorus of thuds and grunts from the yard below. To a disappointment, it was the younger boys drilling. Bran was so heavily padded, he looked as though he had belted on a feather bed. And Prince Tommen, who was plump to begin with, seemed positively round. They were huffing and puffing and hitting each other with padded wooden swords under the watchful eye of old Sir Roderick Cassell, the master-at-arms, a great stout keg of a man with magnificent white cheek whiskers. A dozen spectators, man and boy, were calling out encouragement, Rob's voice the loudest among them. She spotted Theon Greyjoy beside him, his black doublet emblazoned with the golden kraken of his house, a look of wry contempt on his face. Both of the combatants were staggering. Arya judged that they had been at it a while. A shade more exhausting than needlework, John observed. A shade more fun than needlework, Arya gave back at him. John grinned, reached over, and messed up her hair. Arya flushed. They had always been close. 
John had his father's face, as she did. They were the only ones. Rob and Sansa and Bran and even little Rickon all took after the Tullys, with easy smiles and fire in their hair. When Arya had been little, she had been afraid that meant that she was a bastard too. It had been John she had gone to in her fear, and John who had reassured her. "'Why aren't you down in the yard?' Arya asked him. He gave her a half-smile. "'Bastards are not allowed to damage young princes,' he said. "'Any bruises they take in the practice yard must come from true-born swords.' "'Oh,' Arya felt abashed. She should have realized. For the second time today, Arya reflected that life was not fair. She watched her little brother whack at Tommen. "'I could do just as good as Bran,' she said. "'He's only seven. I'm nine. John looked her over with all his fourteen-year-old wisdom. "'You're too skinny,' he said. He took her arm to feel her muscle. Then he sighed and shook his head. <laughs> "'I doubt you could even lift a longsword, little sister. Never mind swing one.' Arya snatched back her arm and glared at him. John messed up her hair again. They watched Bran and Tom and circle each other. "'You see, Prince Joffrey?' John asked. She hadn't, not at first glance, but when she looked again she found him to the back, under the shade of a high stone wall. He was surrounded by men she did not recognize, young squires in the livery of Lannister and Baratheon, strangers all. There were a few older men among them, knights, she surmised. Look at the arms on his surcoat, John suggested. Arya looked. An ornate shield had been embroidered on the prince's padded surcoat. No doubt the needlework was exquisite. The arms were divided down the middle. On one side was the crown stag of the royal house. On the other, the lion of Lannister. The Lannisters are proud, John observed. You think the royal sigil would be sufficient. But no, he makes his mother's house equal in honor to the king's. The woman is important too, Arya protested. John chuckled. Perhaps you should do the same thing, little sister. Wed Tully to Stark in your arms. A wolf with a fish in its mouth, it made her laugh. That would look silly. Besides, if a girl can't fight, why should she have a coat of arms? John shrugged. Girls get the arms, but not the swords. Bastards get the swords, but not the arms. I did not make the rules, little sister. There was a shout from the courtyard below. Prince Tommen was rolling in the dust, trying to get up and failing. All the padding made him look like a turtle on its back. Bran was standing over him with upraised wooden sword, ready to whack him again once he regained his feet. The men began to laugh. Enough! Sir Roderick called out. He gave the prince a hand and yanked him to his feet. Well fought! Lou! Donis! Help them out of their armour! He looked around. Prince Joffrey! Rob! Will you go another round? Rob, already sweaty from a previous bout, moved forward eagerly. Gladly. Joffrey moved into the sunlight in response to Roderick's summons. His hair shone like spun gold. He looked bored. This is a game for children, Sir Roderick. Theon Greyjoy gave a sudden bark of laughter. <laughs> you are children, he said derisively. Rob may be a child, Joffrey said. I am a prince. "'and I go tired of swatting at Starks with a play-sword. "'You got more swats than you gave, Joff,' Rob said. "'Are you afraid?' "'Prince Joffrey looked at him. "'Oh, terrified,' he said. "'You're so much older.' 
some of the Lannister men laughed. John looked down on the scene with a frown. Joffrey is truly a little shit, he told Arya. Sir Roderick tugged thoughtfully at his white whiskers. What are you suggesting? he asked the prince. Live steel. Done, Rob shot back. You'll be sorry. The master at arms put a hand on Rob's shoulder to quiet him. Live steel is too dangerous. I will permit you tawny swords with blunted edges. Joffrey said nothing. But a man strange to Arya, a tall knight with black hair and burnt scars on his face, pushed forward in front of the prince. This is your prince. Who are you to tell him he may not have an edge on his sword, sir? Master at arms at Winterville, Clegane, and you'll be well not to forget it. Are you training women here? The burn man wanted to know. He was muscled like a bull. I am training knights, Sir Roderick said pointedly. They will have steel when they are ready. When they are of an age. The burn man looked at Rob. How old are you, boy? Fourteen, Rob said. I killed a man at twelve. You can be sure it was not with a blunt sword. Ari could see Rob bristle. His pride was wounded. He turned to Sir Roderick. Let, let me do it. I, I can beat him. Beat him with a tawny blade, then, Sir Roderick said. Joffrey shrugged. Come and see me when you're older, Stark, if you're not too old. There was laughter from the Lannister men. Rob's curses rang through the yard. Arya covered her mouth in shock. Theon Greyjoy seized Rob's arm to keep him away from the prince. Sir Roderick tugged at his whiskers in dismay. Joffrey feigned a yawn and turned to his younger brother. Come, Tommen, he said. The hour of play is done. Leave the children to their frolics. That brought more laughter from the Lannisters, more curses from Rob. Sir Roderick's face was beet red with fury under the white of his whiskers. Theon kept Rob locked in an iron grip until the princes and their party were safely away. John watched them leave, and Arya watched John. His face had grown as still as the pool at the heart of the godswood. Finally, he climbed down off the window. The show is done, he said. He bent to scratch ghosts behind the ear. The white wolf rose and rubbed against him. You'd best run back to your room, little sister. Septimordain will surely be lurking. The longer you hide, the sterner the penance. You'll be sowing all through the winter. When the spring thaw comes, they'll find your body with a needle still locked tight between your frozen fingers. Arya didn't think it was funny. I hate needlework, she said with passion. It's not fair. Nothing is fair, John said. He messed up her hair again and walked away from her. Ghost moving silently beside him. Nymeria started to follow too, then stopped and came back when she saw that Arya was not coming. Reluctantly, she turned in the other direction. It was worse than John had thought. It wasn't Septa Mordain waiting in her room. It was Septa Mordain and her mother. Bran The hunt left at dawn. The king wanted wild boar at the feast tonight. Prince Joffrey rode with his father, so Rob had been allowed to join the hunters as well. Uncle Benjamin, Jory, Theon Greyjoy, Sir Roderick, and even the Queen's funny little brother had all ridden out with them. It was the last hunt, after all. On the morrow, they left for the south. Bran had been left behind with John and the girls and Rickon. 
But Rickon was only a baby, and the girls were only girls, and John and his wolf were nowhere to be found. Bran did not look for him very hard. He thought John was angry at him. John seemed angry with everyone these days. Bran did not know why. He was going with Uncle Ben to the wall to join the Night's Watch. That was almost as good as going south for the king. Rob was the one they were leaving behind, not John. For days, Bran could scarcely wait to be off. He was going to ride the King's Road on a horse of his own. Not a pony, but a real horse. His father would be the Hand of the King, and they were going to live in the Red Castle at King's Landing, the castle the Dragon Lords had built. Old Nan said there were ghosts there, and dungeons where terrible things had been done, and dragon heads on the walls. It gave Bran a shiver just to think of it, but he was not afraid. How could he be afraid? His father would be with him, and the king and all his knights and sworn swords. Bran was going to be a knight himself some day, one of the king's guard. Old Nan said they were the finest swords in all the realm. There were only seven of them, and they wore white armor and had no wives or children, but lived only to serve the king. Bran knew all the stories. Their names were like music to him. Serwyn of the Mirror Shield, Sir Ryman Redwine, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, the twins, Sir Eric and Sir Eric, who had died on one another's swords hundreds of years ago, when brother fought sister in the war the singers called the Dance of the Dragons, the White Bull, Gerard Hightower, Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, Barristan the Bold, Two of the king's guards had come north with King Robert. Bran had watched them with fascination, never quite daring to speak to them. Sir Boris was a bald man with a jowly face. Sir Maron had droopy eyes and a beard the colour of rust. Sir Jamie Lannister looked more like the knights in the stories, and he was of the king's guard too. But Rob said he had killed the old mad king and shouldn't count any more. The greatest living knight was Sir Barristan Selmy, Barristan the Bold, the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Father had promised that they would meet Sir Barristan when they reached King's Landing, and Bran had been marking the days on his wall, eager to depart, to see a world he had only dreamed of, and begin a life he could scarcely imagine. Yet now, that the last day was at hand, suddenly Bran felt lost. Winterfell had been the only home he'd ever known. His father had told him that he ought to say his farewells today, and he had tried. After the hunt had ridden out, he wandered through the castle with his wolf at his side, intending to visit the ones who would be left behind. Old Nan, and Gage the cook, Micken in his smithy, Hodor, the stable boy, who smiled so much and took care of his pony, and never said anything but, Hodor! the man in the glass garden who gave him a blackberry when he came to visit. But it, it was no good. He, he had gone to the stable first and seen his pony there in its stall, except it wasn't his pony any more. He was getting a real horse and leaving the pony behind. And all of a sudden, Bran just wanted to sit down and cry. He turned and ran off before Hodar and the other stable boys could see the tears in his eyes. That was the end of his farewells. Instead, Bran spent the morning alone in the guard's wood, trying to teach his wolf to fetch a stick, and failing. The wolfling was smarter than any of the hounds in his father's kennels, 
and Bran would have sworn he understood every word that was said to him, but he showed little interest in chasing sticks. He was still trying to decide on a name. Rob was calling his Grey Wind, because he ran so fast. Sansa had named hers Lady, and Arya named hers after some old witch-queen in the songs, and little Rickon called his Shaggy Dog, which Bran thought was a pretty stupid name for a direwolf. John's wolf, the white one, was Ghost. Bran wished he had thought of that first, even though his wolf wasn't white. He had tried a hundred names in the last fortnight, but none of them sounded right. Finally, he got tired of the stick game and decided to go climbing. He hadn't been up in the broken tower for weeks with everything that had happened, and this might be his last chance. He raced across the godswood, taking the long way around to avoid the pool where the heart tree grew. The heart tree had always frightened him. Trees ought not to have eyes, Bran thought, or leaves that look like hands. His wolf came sprinting at his heel. You stay here, he told him, at the base of the sentinel tree near the armory wall. Lie down. That's right. Now stay. The wolf did as he was told. Bran scratched him behind the ears, then turned away, jumped, grabbed a low branch, and pulled himself up. He was halfway up the tree, moving easily from limb to limb, when the wolf got to his feet and began to howl. Bran looked back down. His wolf fell silent, staring after him through slitted yellow eyes. A strange chill went through him. He began to climb again. Once more the wolf howled. Quiet, he yelled. Sit down. Stay. You're worse than mother. The howling chased him all the way up the tree, until finally he jumped off onto the armory roof and out of sight. The rooftops at Winterfell were Bran's second home. His mother often said that Bran could climb before he could walk. Bran could not remember when he first learned to walk, but he could not remember when he first started to climb either, so he supposed it must be true. To a boy, Winterfell was a grey stone labyrinth of walls and towers and courtyards and tunnels spreading in all directions. In the older parts of the castle, the hall slanted up and down so that you couldn't be sure what floor you were on. The place had grown over the centuries like some monstrous stone tree, Maester Lewin told him once, and its branches were gnarled and thick and twisted, its roots sunk deep into the earth. When he got out from under it and scrambled up near the sky, Bran could see all of Winterfell in a glance. He liked the way it looked, spread out beneath him, only birds wheeling over his head while all the life of the castle went on below. Bran could perch for hours amongst the shapeless, rain-worn gargoyles that brooded over the first keep, watching it all, the men drilling with wood and steel in the yard, the cooks tending their vegetables in the glass garden, restless dogs running back and forth in the kennels, the silence of the guard's wood, the girls gossiping beside the washing well. It made him feel like he was lord of the castle in a way even Rob would never know. It taught him Winterfell's secrets, too. The builders had not even leveled the earth. There were hills and valleys behind the walls of Winterfell. There was a covered bridge that went from the fourth floor of the bell tower across to the second floor of the rookery. Bran knew about that, and he knew that you could get inside the inner wall by the south gate, climb three floors, and run all the way around Winterfell through a narrow tunnel in the stone, and then come out on ground level at the north gate, 
with a hundred feet of wall looming over you. Even Maester Lewin didn't know that, Bran was convinced. His mother was terrified that one day Bran would slip off a wall and kill himself. He told her that he wouldn't, but she never believed him. Once she had made him promise that he would stay on the ground. He had managed to keep that promise for almost a fortnight, miserable every day, until one night he had gone out of the window of his bedroom when his brothers were fast asleep. He confessed his crime the next day in a fit of guilt. Lord Eddard ordered him to the Godswood to cleanse himself. Guards were posted to see that Bran remained there alone all night to reflect on his disobedience. The next morning, Bran was nowhere to be seen. They finally found him fast asleep in the upper branches of the tallest sentinel in the grove. As angry as he was, his father could not help but laugh. <laughs> You're not my son, he told Bran when they fetched him down. You're a squirrel. So be it. If you must climb, then climb, but try not to let your mother see you. Bran did his best, although he did not think he ever really fooled her. Since his father would not forbid it, she turned to others. Old Nan told him a story about a bad little boy who climbed too high and was struck down by lightning, and how afterwards the crows came to peck out his eyes. Bran was not impressed. There were crows' nests atop the broken tower, where no one ever went but him, and sometimes he filled his pockets with corn before he climbed up there, and the crows ate it right out of his hand. None of them had ever shown the slightest bit of interest in pecking out his eyes. Later, Maester Lewin built a little pottery boy and dressed him in Bran's clothes and flung him off the wall into the yard below to demonstrate what would happen to Bran if he fell. That had been fun, but afterwards Bran just looked at the maester and said, I'm not made of clay, and anyhow, I never fall. Then for a while the guards would chase him whenever they saw him on the roofs and tried to haul him down. That was the best time of all. It was like playing a game with his brothers, except that Bran always won. None of the guards could climb half as well as Bran, not even Jory. Most of the time they never saw him anyway. People never looked up. That was another thing he liked about climbing. It was almost like being invisible. He liked how it felt, too, pulling himself up a wall, stone by stone, fingers and toes digging hard into the small crevices between. He always took off his boots and went barefoot when he climbed. It made him feel as if he had four hands instead of two. He liked the deep, sweet ache it left in the muscles afterwards. He liked the way the air tasted way up high sweet and cold as a winter peach. He liked the birds, the crows and the broken tower, the little sparrows that nested in cracks between the stones, the ancient owl that slept in the dusty loft above the old armory. Bran knew them all. Most of all, he liked going places that no one else could go, and seeing the grey sprawl of Winterfell in a way that no one else ever saw it. It made the whole castle Bran's secret place. His favourite haunt was a broken tower. Once it had been a watchtower, the tallest in Winterfell. A long time ago, a hundred years before even his father had been born, a lightning strike had set it afire. The top third of the structure had collapsed inward, and the tower had never been rebuilt. 
sometimes his father sent ratters into the base of the tower to clean out the nests they always found among the jumble of fallen stones and charred and rotten beams. But no one ever got up to the jagged top of the structure now, except Bran and the crows. He knew two ways to get there. You could climb straight up the side of the tower itself, but the stones were loose, the mortar that held them together long gone to ash, and Bran never liked to put his full weight on them. The best way was to start from the godswood, shinny up the tall sentinel, and cross over the armory and the guards' hall, leaping roof to roof, barefoot, so the guards wouldn't hear you overhead. That brought you up to the blind side of the first keep, the oldest part of the castle, a squat round fortress that was taller than it looked. Only rats and spiders live there now, but the old stones still made for good climbing. You could go straight up to where the gargoyles leaned out blindly over empty space and swing from gargoyle to gargoyle, hand over hand, around to the north side. From there, if you really stretched, you could reach out and pull yourself over to the broken tower where it leaned close. The last part was a scramble up the blackened stones to the eyrie no more than ten feet, and then the crows would come round to see if you'd brought any corn. Bran was moving from gargoyle to gargoyle with the ease of long practice when he heard the voices. He was so startled, he almost lost his grip. The first keep had been empty all his life. I do not like it, a woman was saying. There was a row of windows beneath him, and the voice was drifting out of the last window in his side. You should be the hand. Oh, God's forbid, a man's voice replied lazily. It's not an honor I'd want. There's far too much work involved. Bran hung listening, suddenly afraid to go on. They might glimpse his feet if he tried to swing by. Don't you see the danger this puts us in? The woman said. Robert loves the man like a brother. Robert can barely stomach his brothers. Not that I blame him. <laughs> Stannis would be enough to give anyone indigestion. Oh, don't play the fool. Stannis and Renly are one thing, and Eddard Stark is quite another. Robert will listen to Stark. Damn them both! I, I should have insisted that he name you, but I was certain Stark would refuse him. We ought to count ourselves fortunate, the man said. The king might easily have named one of his brothers, or even Littlefinger. God's help us. Give me honourable enemies rather than ambitious ones, and I'll sleep more easily by night. They were talking about father, Bran realized. He wanted to hear more, a few more feet. But they would see him if he swung out in front of the window. We will have to watch him carefully, the woman said. I would sooner watch you, the man said. He sounded bored. Come back here. Lord Eddard has never taken any interest in anything that happens south of the Neck, the woman said. Never, I tell you. He means to move against us. Why else would he leave the seat of his power? A hundred reasons, duty, honor. He yearns to write his name large across the book of history, to get away from his wife, or both. Perhaps he just wants to be warm for once in his life. His wife is Lady Aaron's sister. It's a wonder Lysa was not here to greet us with her accusations. Bran looked down. There was a narrow ledge beneath the window, only a few inches wide. He tried to lower himself toward it. Too far. He would never reach. You fret too much, 
lies Sir Aaron as a frightened cow. That frightened cow shared John Aaron's bed. But if she knew anything, she would have gone to Robert before she fled King's Landing. When he had already agreed to foster that weakling son of hers at Castle Rock, I think not. She knew the boy's life would be hostage to her silence. She may grow bolder now that he's safe atop the Eyrie. <laughs> Mothers! The man made the word sound like a curse. I think birthing does something to your mind. You're all mad. <laughs> he laughed. It was a bitter sound. Let Lady Aaron grow as bold as she likes. Whatever she knows, whatever she thinks she knows, she has no proof. He paused a moment. Or uh, does she? Do you think the king will require proof, the woman said. I tell you, he loves me not. And whose fault is that, sweet sister? Bran studied the ledge. He could drop down. It was too narrow to land on, but if he could catch hold as he fell past, pull himself up, except that might make a noise, draw them to the window. He was not sure what he was hearing, but he knew it was not meant for his ears. You are as blind as Robert, the woman was saying. If you mean I see the same thing, the man said, I see a man who would sooner die than betray his king. He betrayed one already, or have you forgotten, the woman said. Oh, I don't deny he's loyal to Robert, that's obvious. What happens when Robert dies and Joff takes the throne? And the sooner that comes to pass, the safer we'll all be. My husband grows more restless every day. Having Stark beside him will only make him worse. He's still in love with the sister, the insipid little dead sixteen-year-old. How long till he decides to put me aside for some new Leanna? Bran was suddenly very frightened. He wanted nothing so much as to go back the way he had come, to find his brothers. Only what would he tell them? He had to get closer, Bran realized. He had to see who was talking. The man sighed. You should think less about the future and more about the pleasures at hand. Stop that, the woman said. Bran heard the sudden slap of flesh on flesh, then the man's laughter. Bran pulled himself up, climbed over the gargoyle, crawled out along the roof. This was the easy way. He moved across the roof to the next gargoyle, right above the window of the room where they were talking. All this talk is getting very tiresome, sister, the man said. Come here and be quiet. Bran sat astride the gargoyle, tightening his legs around it, and swung himself around upside down. He hung by his legs and slowly stretched his head down toward the window. The world seemed strange upside down, a courtyard swam dizzily below him, its stones still wet with melted snow. Bran looked in the window. Inside the room, a man and a woman were wrestling. They were both naked. Bran could not tell who they were. The man's back was to him, and his body screened the woman from view as he pushed her up against a wall. There were soft, wet sounds. Bran realized they were kissing. He watched, wide-eyed and frightened, his breath tight in his throat. The man had a hand down between her legs, and he must have been hurting her there, because the woman started to moan low in her throat. Stop it, she said. Stop it. Stop it. Oh, please. But her voice was low and weak, and she did not push him away. Her hands buried themselves in his hair. 
his tangled golden hair and pulled his face down to her breast. Bran saw her face. Her eyes were closed and her mouth was open, moaning. Her golden hair swung from side to side as her head moved back and forth, but still he recognized the queen. He must have made a noise. Suddenly her eyes opened, and she was staring right at him. She screamed. Everything happened at once then. The woman pushed the man away wildly, shouting and pointing. Bran tried to pull himself up, bending double as he reached for the gargoyle. He was in too much of a hurry. His hand scraped uselessly across the smooth stone, and in his panic his leg slipped, and suddenly he was falling. There was an instant of vertigo, a sickening lurch as the window flashed past. He shut out a hand, grabbed for the ledge, lost it, caught it again with his other hand. He swung against the building hard. The impact took the breath out of him. Bran dangled, one-handed, panting. Faces appeared in the window above him. The Queen, and now Bran recognized the man beside her. They looked as much alike as reflections in a mirror. He saw us, the woman said shrilly. So he did, the man said. Brian's finger started to slip. He grabbed the ledge with his other hand. Fingernails dug into the unyielding stone. The man reached down. Take my hand, he said, before you fall. Bran seized his arm and held on tight with all his strength. The man yanked him up to the ledge. What are you doing? the woman demanded. The man ignored her. He was very strong. He stood Bran up on the sill. How old are you, boy? Seven, Bran said, shaking with relief. His fingers had dug deep gouges in the man's forearm. He let go sheepishly. The man looked over at the woman. The things I do for love, he said, with loathing. He gave Bran a shove. Screaming, Bran fell backward out of the window into empty air. There was nothing to grab onto. The courtyard rushed up to meet him. Somewhere in the distance, a wolf was howling. Crows circled the broken tower, waiting for corn. Tyrion Somewhere in the great stone maze of Winterfell, a wolf howled. The sound hung over the castle like a flag of mourning. Tyrion Lannister looked up from his books and shivered, though the library was snug and warm. Something about the howling of a wolf took a man right out of his here and now and left him in a dark forest of the mind, running naked before the pack. When the direwolf howled again, Tyrion shut the heavy leather-bound cover of the book he was reading, a hundred-year-old discourse on the changing of the seasons by a long-dead maester. He covered a yawn with the back of his hand. His reading lamp was flickering. It's all all but gone as dawnlight leaked through the high windows. He had been at it all night. Well, that was nothing new. Tyrion Lannister was not much a one for sleeping. His legs were stiff and sore as he eased down off the bench. He massaged some life back into them and limped heavily to the table where the septon was snoring softly. His head pillowed on an open book in front of him. Tyrion glanced at the title. A life of the Grand Maester Aethelmure. No wonder. Shale, he said softly. The young man jerked up, blinking, confused. 
the crystal of his order swinging wildly on its silver chain. I'm off to break my fast. I see that you return the books to the shelves. I'll be gentle with Valyrian scrolls. The parchment is very dry. Armadon's engines of war is quite rare, and yours is the only complete copy I've ever seen. Shale gaped at him, still half asleep. Patiently, Tyrion repeated his instructions, then clapped the septon on the shoulder and left him to his tasks. Outside, Tyrion swallowed a lungful of cold morning air and began his laborious descent of the steep stone steps that corkscrewed around the exterior of the library tower. It was slow going. The steps were cut high and narrow, while his legs were short and twisted. The rising sun had not yet cleared the walls of Winterfell, but the men were already hard at it in the yard below. Sandor Clegane's rasping voice drifted up to him. The boy's a long time dying. I wish he'd be quicker about it. Tyrion glanced down and saw the hounds standing with young Joffrey as squires swarmed around them. At least he dies quietly, the prince replied. It's the wolf that makes the noise. I could scarcely sleep last night. Clegane cast a long shadow over the hard-packed earth as his squire lowered the black helm over his head. I could silence the creature, if it pleased you he said through his open visor. The boy placed a long sword in his hand. He tested the weight of it, slicing at the cold morning air. Behind him, the yard rang to the clangor of steel on steel. The notion seemed to delight the prince. There, send a dog to kill a dog, he exclaimed. Winterfell is so infested with wolves, the Starks would never miss one. Tyrion hopped off the last step onto the yard. I beg to differ, nephew, he said. The Starks can count past six, unlike some princes I might name. Joffrey had the grace at least to blush. A voice from nowhere, Sander said. He peered through his helm, looking this way and that. Spirits of the air! The prince laughed, as he always laughed when his bodyguard did this mama's farce. Tyrion was used to it. Down here! The tall man peered down at the ground and pretended to notice him. "'The little Lord Tyrion,' he said. <laughs> "'My pardons, I did not see you standing there. "'I'm in no mood for your insolence today,' Tyrion turned to his nephew. "'Joffrey, it is past time you called on Lord Eddard and his lady to offer them your comfort.' Joffrey looked as petulant as only a boy prince can look. "'What good will my comfort do them?' "'None,' Tyrion said. Yet it is expected of you. Your absence has been noted. The Stark boy is nothing to me, Joffrey said. I cannot avoid the wailing of women. Tyrion Lannister reached up and slapped his nephew hard across the face. The boy's cheek began to redden. One word, Tyrion said, and I will itch you again. I'm going to tell mother, Joffrey exclaimed. Tyrion hit him again. Now both cheeks flamed. You tell your mother... Tyrion told him, but first, you get yourself to Lord and Lady Stark, and you fall to your knees in front of them, and you tell them how very sorry you are, and that you're at their service if there is the slightest thing you can do for them or theirs in this desperate hour, and that all your prayers go with them. Do you understand? Do you? The boy looked as though he was going to cry. Instead, he managed a weak nod. Then he turned and fled headlong from the yard, holding his cheek. Tyrion watched him run. A shadow fell across his face. 
he turned to find Clegane looming overhead like a cliff. His soot-dark armour seemed to blot out the sun. He had lowered the visor over his helm. It was fashioned in the likeness of a snarling black hound, fearsome to behold. But Tyrion had always thought it a great improvement over Clegane's hideously burned face. The prince will remember that, little lord. <laughs> the helm turned his laugh into a hollow rumble. I pray he does, Tyrion Lannister replied. If he forgets, be a good dog and remind him. He glanced around the courtyard. Do you know where I might find my brother? Breaking fast with the queen. Ah, Tyrion said. He gave Sandor Clegane a perfunctory nod and walked away as briskly as his stunted legs would carry him, whistling. He pitied the first night to try the hound today. The man did have a temper. A cold, cheerless meal had been laid out in the morning room of the guest house. Jamie sat at table and Cersei and the children talking in low, hushed voices. Is Robert still abed? Tyrion asked as he seated himself, uninvited, at the table. His sister peered at him with the same expression of faint distaste she had worn since the day he was born. The king has not slept at all, she told him. He is with Lord Eddard. He has taken their sorrow deeply to heart. He has a large heart, our Robert, Jamie said with a lazy smile. There was very little that Jamie took seriously. Tyrion knew that about his brother and forgave it. During all the terrible long years of his childhood, only Jamie had ever shown him the smallest measure of affection or respect, and for that Tyrion was willing to forgive him most anything. A servant approached. Bread, Tyrion told him, and two of those little fish, and a mug of that good dark beer to wash them down. Oh, and some bacon. Burn it until it turns black. The man bowed and moved off. Tyrion looked back to his siblings. Twins, male and female. They looked very much the part this morning. Both had chosen a deep green that matched their eyes. Their blonde curls were all a fashionable tumble, and gold ornaments shone at wrists and fingers and throats. Tyrion wondered what it would be like to have a twin, and decided that he would rather not know. Bad enough to face himself in a looking-glass every day. Another him was a thought too dreadful to contemplate. Prince Tommen stood up. Do you have news of Bran, uncle? I stopped by the sick room last night, Tyrion announced. There was no change. The maester thought that was a hopeful sign. I don't want Brandon to die, Tommen said timorously. He was a sweet boy, not like his brother, but then Jamie and Tyrion were somewhat less than peas in a pod themselves. Lord Eddard had a brother named Brandon as well, Jamie mused. One of the hostages murdered by Targaryen. It seems to be an unlucky name. Oh, not so unlucky as all that, surely, Tyrion said. The servant brought his plate. He ripped off a chunk of black bread. Cersei was studying him warily. What do you mean? Tyrion gave her a crooked smile. Why, only that Tommen may get his wish. The maester thinks the boy may yet live. He took a sip of beer. Marcella gave a happy gasp, and Tommen smiled nervously, but it was not the children Tyrion was watching. The glance that passed between Jamie and Cersei lasted no more than a second, but he did not miss it. Then his sister dropped her gaze to the table. That is no mercy, 
these northern guards are cruel to let the child linger in such pain. What were the maester's words? Jamie asked. The bacon crunched when he bit into it. Tyrion chewed thoughtfully for a moment and said, He thinks that if the boy were going to die, he would have done so already. It has been four days with no change. Will Bran get better, uncle? Little Marcella asked. She had all of her mother's beauty, but none of her nature. His back is broken, little one, Tyrion told her. The fall shattered his legs as well. They keep him alive with honey and, and water, or he, he would starve to death. Perhaps, if he wakes, he will be able to eat real food, but he will never walk again. If he wakes, Cersei repeated, is, is that likely? Well, the guards alone know, Tyrion told her. The maester only hopes. He chewed some more bread. I would swear that wolf of his is keeping the boy alive. The creatures outside his window, day and night, howling. Every time they chase it away, it returns. Maester said they closed the window once to shut out the noise, and Bran seemed to weaken. When they opened it again, his heart beat stronger. The Queen shuddered. There is something unnatural about those animals, she said. They are dangerous. I will not have any of them coming south with us. Jamie said, You'll have a hard time stopping them, sister. They follow those girls everywhere. Tyrion started on his fish. Uh, are you leaving soon, then? Not near soon enough, Cersei said. Then she frowned. Are we leaving, she echoed. What about you? Gods, don't tell me you're staying here. Tyrion shrugged. Benjamin Stark is returning to the Night's Watch with his brother's bastard. I've a mind to go with them and see this war we've all heard so much of. Jamie smiled. I hope you're not thinking of taking the black on us, sweet brother. Tyrion laughed. What me, celibate? The oars would go begging from dawn to Casterly Rock. No, I, I just want to stand on top of the wall and piss off the edge of the world. Cersei stood abruptly. The children don't need to hear this filth. Tommen, Marcella, come. She strode briskly from the morning room, her train and her pups trailing behind her. Jamie Lannister regarded his brother thoughtfully with those cold green eyes. Stark will never consent to leave Winterfell, with his son lingering in the shadow of death. We will, if Robert commands it, Tyrion said. A and Robert will command it. There's nothing Lord Eddard can do for the boy in any case. He could end his torment, Jamie said. I would, if it were my son. It would be a mercy. I advise against putting that suggestion to Lord Eddard, sweet brother, Tyrion said. He would not take it kindly. Even if the boy does live, he'll be a cripple, worse than a cripple, a grotesque. Give me a good clean death. Tyrion replied with a shrug that accentuated the twist of his shoulders. Speaking for the grotesques, he said, I beg to differ. Death is so terribly final, while life is full of possibilities. Jamie smiled. You are a perverse little imp, aren't you? Oh, yes, Tyrion admitted. I hope the boy does wake. I would be most interested to hear what he might have to say. His brother's smile curdled like sour milk. Tyrion, my sweet brother, he said darkly, there are times 
when you give me cause to wonder whose side you are on. Tyrion's mouth was full of bread and fish. He took a swallow of strong black beer to wash it all down, and grinned up wolfishly at Jamie. "'Why, Jamie, my sweet brother,' he said, "'you wound me. You know how much I love my family.' John. John climbed the steps slowly, trying not to think that this might be the last time ever. Ghost padded silently beside him. Outside, snow swirled through the castle gates, and the yard was all noise and chaos. But inside the thick stone walls, it was still warm and quiet. Too quiet for John's liking. He reached the landing and stood for a moment, afraid. Ghost nuzzled at his hand. He took courage from that. He straightened and entered the room. Lady Stark was there beside his bed. She had been there, day and night, for close on a fortnight. Not for a moment had she left Bran's side. She had her meals brought to her there, and chamber pots as well, and a small hard bed to sleep on, though it was said... She had scarcely slept at all. She fed him herself, the honey and water and herb mixture that sustained life. Not once did she leave the room, so John had stayed away. But now there was no more time. He stood in the door for a moment, afraid to speak, afraid to come closer. The window was open. Below, a wolf howled. Ghost heard and lifted his head. Lady Stark looked over. For a moment she did not seem to recognize him. Finally she blinked. What are you doing here? She asked in a voice strangely flat and emotionless. I came to see Bran, John said, to say goodbye. Her face did not change. Her long auburn hair was dull and tangled. She looked as though she had aged twenty years. You said it. Now go away. Part of him wanted only to flee... But he knew that if he did, he might never see Bran again. He took a nervous step into the room. Please, he said. Something cold moved in her eyes. I told you to leave, she said. We don't want you here. Once that would have sent him running. Once that might even have made him cry. Now it only made him angry. He would be a sworn brother of the Night's Watch soon and face worse dangers than Catelyn Tully Stark. He is my brother, he said. Shall I call the guards? Call them, John said defiantly. You can't stop me from seeing him. He crossed the room, keeping the bed between them, and looked down on Bran where he lay. She was holding one of his hands. It looked like a claw. This was not the Bran he remembered. The flesh had all gone from him. His skin stretched tight over bones like sticks. Under the blanket, his legs bent in ways that made John sick. His eyes were sunken deep into black pits, open, but they saw nothing. The fall had shrunken him somehow. He looked half a leaf, as if the first strong wind would carry him off to his grave. Yet under the frail cage of those shattered ribs, his chest rose and fell with each shallow breath. Brand, he said. I'm sorry I didn't come before. I was afraid. He could feel the tears rolling down his cheeks. John no longer cared. 
Don't die, Bran, please. We're all waiting for you to wake up. Me and Rob and the girls, everyone. Lady Stark was watching. She had not raised a cry. John took that for acceptance. Outside the window, the dire wolf howled again. The wolf that Bran had not had time to name. I have to go now, John said. Uncle Benjamin is waiting. I'm to go north to the war. We have to leave today, before the snows come. He remembered how excited Bran had been at the prospect of the journey. It was more than he could bear, the thought of him leaving him behind like this. John brushed away his tears, leaned over, and kissed his brother lightly on the lips. I wanted him to stay here with me, Lady Stark said softly. John watched her, wary. She was not even looking at him. She was talking to him, but for a part of her it was as though he were not even in the room. I prayed for it, she said dully. He was my special boy. I went to the sept and prayed seven times to the seven faces of God that Ned would change his mind and leave him here with me. Sometimes prayers are answered. John did not know what to say. It wasn't your fault, he managed after an awkward silence. Her eyes found him. They were full of poison. I need none of your absolution, bastard. John lowered his eyes. She was cradling one of Bran's hands. He took the other, squeezed it, fingers like the bones of birds. Goodbye, he said. He was at the door when she called out to him. John, she said. He should have kept going. But she had never called him by his name before. He turned to find her looking at his face, as if she were seeing it for the first time. Yes, he said. It should have been you, she told him. Then she turned back to Bran and began to weep, her whole body shaking with the sobs. John had never seen her cry before. It was a long walk down to the yard. Outside, everything was noise and confusion. Wagons were being loaded, men were shouting, horses were being harnessed and saddled and led from the stables. A light snow had begun to fall, and everyone was in an uproar to be off. Rob was in the middle of it, shouting commands were the best of them. He seemed to have grown of late, as if Bran's fall and his mother's collapse had somehow made him stronger. Grey wind was at his side. Uncle Benjamin is looking for you, he told John. He wanted to be gone an hour ago. I know, John said. Soon. He looked around at all the noise and confusion. Leaving is harder than I thought. For me too, Rob said. He had snow in his hair, melting from the heat of his body. Did you see him? John nodded, not trusting himself to speak. He's not going to die, Rob said. I know it. You Starks are hard to kill, John agreed. His voice was flat and tired. The visitor had taken all the strength from him. Rob knew something was wrong. My mother... She was... very kind... John told him. Rob looked relieved. Good, he smiled. The next time I see you, you'll be all in black. John forced himself to smile back. It was always my colour. How long do you think it will be? Soon enough, Rob promised. He pulled John to him and embraced him fiercely. Farewell, Snow. 
John hugged him back. And you, Stark, take care of Bran. I will. They broke apart and looked at each other awkwardly. Uncle Benjamin said to send you to the stable if I saw you, Rob said finally. I have one more farewell to make, John told him. Then I haven't seen you, Rob replied. John left him standing there in the snow, surrounded by wagons and wolves and horses. It was a short walk to the armory. He picked up his package and took the covered bridge across to the keep. Aria was in her room, packing a polished ironwood chest that was bigger than she was. Nymeria was helping. Aria would only have to point, and the wolf would bound across the room, snatch up some wisp of silk in her jaws, and fetch it back. But when she smelled ghost, she sat down on her haunches and yelped at them. Aria glanced behind her, saw John, and jumped to her feet. She threw her skinny arms tight around his neck. I was afraid you were gone, she said, her breath catching in her throat. They wouldn't let me come out to say goodbye. What did you do now? John was amused. Aria disentangled herself from him and made a face. Nothing. I was all packed and everything. She gestured at the huge chest, no more than the third fall, and at the clothes that were scattered all over the room. Septim Ordain says I have to do it all over. My clothes weren't properly folded, she said. A proper southern lady doesn't just throw her clothes inside her chest like old rags, she said. Is that what you did, little sister? Well, they're going to get all messed up anyway, she said. Who cares how they're folded? Septim Ordain, John told her. I don't think she'd like Nymeria helping either. The she-wolf regarded him silently with her dark golden eyes. It's just as well. I have something for you to take with you, and has to be packed very carefully. Her face lit up. A present? You could call it that. Close the door. Weary but excited, Arya checked the hall. Nymeria, here, guard. She left the wolf out there to warn of intruders and close the door. By then, John had pulled off the rags he'd wrapped it in. He held it out to her. Arya's eyes went wide, dark eyes like his. A sword, she said, in a small, hushed breath. The scabbard was soft grey leather, supple as sin. John drew out the blade slowly, so she could see the deep blue sheen of the steel. This is no toy, he told her. Be careful you don't cut yourself. The edges are sharp enough to shave with. Girls don't shave, Arya said. Maybe they should. Have you ever seen the scepter's legs? She giggled at him. It's so skinny. So are you, John told her. I had Micken make this special. The Bravos use swords like this in Pentas and Myr and the other free cities. It won't hack a man's head off, but it can poke him full of holes if you're fast enough. I can be fast, Arya said. You'll have to work at it every day. He put the sword in her hands, showed her how to hold it, and stepped back. How does it feel? Do you like the balance? I think so, Arya said. First lesson, John said. Stick them with a pointy end. Arya gave him a whap on the arm with the flat of the blade. The blow stung, but John found himself grinning like an idiot. I know which end to use, Arya said. A doubtful look crossed her face. Septa Mordain will take it away from me. Not if she doesn't know you have it, John said. 
Who will I practice with? Oh, you'll find someone, John promised her. King's Landing is a true city, a thousand times the size of Winterville. Until you find a partner, watch how they fight in the yard. Run and ride, make yourself strong, and whatever you do... Arya knew what was coming next. They said it together. Don't tell Sansa. John messed up her hair. I will miss you, little sister. Suddenly, she looked like she was going to cry. Wish you were coming with us. Different roads sometimes lead to the same castle. Who knows? He was feeling better now. He was not going to let himself be sad. I'd better go. I'll spend my first year on the wall emptying chamber putts if I keep Uncle Ben waiting any longer. Arya ran to him for a last hug. Put down the sword first, John warned her, laughing. She set it aside almost shyly and showered him with kisses. When he turned back at the door, she was holding it again, trying it for balance. I almost forgot, he told her. All the best swords have names. Like ice, she said. She looked at the blade in hand. Does this have a name? Oh, tell me. Can't you guess? John teased. Your very favorite thing? Arya seemed puzzled at first. Then it came to her. She was that quick. They said it together. Needle! <laughs> the memory of her laughter warmed him on the long ride north. Daenerys Daenerys Targaryen wed Karl Drogo with fear and barbaric splendor in a field beyond the walls of Pentos. For the Dothraki believe that all things of importance in a man's life must be done beneath the open sky. Drogo had called his Kalasar to attend him, and they had come, 40,000 Dothraki warriors, and uncounted numbers of women, children, and slaves. Outside the city walls they camped with their vast herds, raising palaces of woven grass, eating everything in sight, and making the good folk of Pentas more anxious with every passing day. My fellow magisters have double the size of the city guard, Illyrio told them, over platters of honey duck and orange snap peppers one night at the manse that had been Drogo's. The Carl had joined his Kalasar, his estate given over to Daenerys and her brother until the wedding. Beskid Princess Daenerys wedded quickly before they hand half the wealth of Pentos away to sell swords and bravos, Sir Jorah Mormont jested. The exile had offered her brother his sword the night Danny had been sold to Carl Drogo. Viserys had accepted eagerly. Mormont had been their constant companion ever since. Magister Illyrio laughed lightly through his forked beard, but Viserys did not so much as smile. He can have her tomorrow if he likes, her brother said. He glanced over at Danny, and she lowered her eyes. So long as he pays the price. Illyrio waved a languid hand in the air, rings glittering on his fat fingers. I have told you all is settled. Trust me, the Carl has promised you a crown, and you shall have it. Yes, but when? When the Carl chooses, Illyrio said. 
he will have the girl first, and after they are wed, he must make his procession across the plains and present her to the Dush Kaleen at Vaz Dothrak. After that, perhaps, if the omens favour war. Viserys seethed with impatience. I piss on Dothraki omens. The usurper sits on my father's throne. How long must I wait? Illyrio gave her a massive shrug. You have waited most of your life, great king. What is another few months, another few years? Sir Jorah, who had travelled as far east as Vaz Dothrak, nodded in agreement. I counsel you to be patient, Your Grace. The Dothraki are true to their word, but they do things in their own time. A lesser man may beg a favour from the Carl, but must never presume to berate him. Viserys bristled. Guard your tongue, Mormont, or I have it out. I'm no lesser man. I'm the rightful Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. The dragon does not beg. Sir Jorah lowered his eyes respectfully. Illyrio smiled enigmatically and tore a wing from the duck.